Listener warning. This episode deals heavily with the themes of child and human trafficking, sexual abuse, and child abuse. Discretion is advised. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... QAnon Part 4. I'm just kidding. I'm loving this. What is QAnon? It's a massive conspiracy theory movement that began in 2017 and purported that they had a secret insider in the U.S. military known only as Q, leaking info to the public through internet image boards like 4chan and 8chan about how then-president Donald Trump was secretly working behind the scenes, toppling a hidden cabal of satanic, pedophilic, baby-eating villains largely comprised of Democrats, celebrities openly critical of Trump, wealthy Jewish business owners, and entrepreneurs like George Soros and the Rothschilds. In the previous episodes, we've covered the complete timeline of events from the very first post by Q up until the first time that QAnon movement resulted in real-life consequences, the day on June 13th, 2018, when QAnon follower Matthew Wright blocked a freeway near the Hoover Dam and demanded promises he believed had been made by Q and President Donald Trump to be kept. And though thankfully nobody was hurt, it was only just the beginning of the conspiracy theory movement known as QAnon bleeding into the real world. And the result of this, unfortunately, would not remain non-violent. Photos of missiles and mysterious strangers, rants about a shadow government, Freemasons, secret symbols, and predictions of a world about to change. Thank you, Sarah. Um, two quickies about last night in Tampa. Does, first of all, does the president encourage the support of people who showed up last night in these QAnon and Blacks for Trump fringe groups? Uh, and secondly, is the White House willing to say right now, in view of what happened with one of our TV colleagues last night, that it is wrong for his most vocal supporters to be menacing toward journalists doing their jobs in a situation like that? If you tuned into Donald Trump's rally in Tampa, Florida last night, you might have noticed a somewhat ubiquitous Q symbol on signs in the crowd. And if you are lucky enough not to have to had to interact with this idea, let me take a moment to explain. A group called QAnon is being debunked by one of the group's founders. One America's Jack Posobiec spoke with one of the former top members of the group. There is a Hillary this Clinton sex tape that exists. But guess what? It's not fake, okay? So on Anthony Weiner's computer, there was a file that was titled Life Insurance. And in this file... There are videos, allegedly, uh, sex videos, including a sex video of Hillary Clinton, and that's allegedly with quote Q, number 2436. For far too long, we have been silent and allowed our bands of strength that we once formed to defend freedom and liberty to deteriorate. We became divided. We became weak. We elected traitors to govern us. We allowed evil to prey on us. So I went on a call. It was a transfer from one hospital to another. This man had, uh, he had a, a, an extensive health history. He had kidney failure, he was on dialysis. 
He had a GI bleed that had been going on for three days, and his hematocrit and hemoglobin were critical. He pretty much almost bled to death. So the emergency doctor transfused six units of blood, called for us to transport him to another hospital for surgery. Rampa doesn't like the hair. He gets in his face. Ah. <laughs> How much preparation now to call on your entity? Um, I don't call on him. I, it's a matter of me becoming aligned and becoming at peace and uh, not being nervous. Jeffrey Epstein was a billionaire New York businessman whose vast wealth bought an arrogance that knew no limits. Damn the consequences, he acted as if he could have anything he craved. Well, they, they asked about my finances. They didn't seem to get it that HN is not a billion dollar company like the other companies they'd been talking to. I think they were a little bit shocked. There's a place where extremists gather to talk shop. Right now it's closed for business, but if history is any indicator, it'll be back again soon in one form or another. We're talking about 8chan. It's a website linked to the El Paso massacre and also two others. What kind that. of people are, are attracted to, to that sort of world? It's predominantly male, almost all. Before white. all this happened, there was a narrative and not only in the community, but in the media, that, oh, it's just the cost of free speech. And if we all just talk, the best ideas will fall out. Well, HN had been around for five years, and I never saw any good idea fall out. Sorry. Act five. Oh, wait, that's you. You want to read this shit? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Act 5. Apophenia is a hell of a drug, but so is meth. On June 25th, 2018, the QAnon movement was about to get an even bigger supercharge into the mainstream. Just a few days after Matthew Wright blocked traffic on the freeway by the Hoover Dam in Arizona to demand that President Trump release the real OIG report, a report from the Office of the Inspector General that Q had promised would trigger a series of mass arrests and executions of deep state Democrats, an up-and-coming Q influencer named Joe M dropped one of the most polished and concentrated pieces of QAnon propaganda thus far. Prior to this, QAnon didn't have a sales pitch. It was a series of cryptic posts on an obscure and hard-to-read image board synthesized into a bunch of really janky boomer memes and ranting YouTube vlogs. It was endless threads of tweets. It was chaos skittering around through the internet. And don't get me wrong, it was resonating, clearly. But it wasn't ready to truly be pushed into the limelight. Enter Joe M, a fledgling Q promoter with the Twitter handle at Storm Is Upon Us. He dropped the first ever highly produced viral QAnon video called Q, The Plot to Save the World, that not only presented the story of the QAnon movement in a polished and engaging way, but also framed everything in a much more vague and palatable light, without all the specifics of the pedophile cabals and baby-eating politicians. This was the real sales pitch, the true sizzle reel for the movement. QAnon was growing, yes, but prior to this, it was still largely something that you had to go through a significant and fairly convoluted radicalization pipeline in order to buy into. You had to become a fan of some specific YouTuber or Twitter poster, consume their content over time out of curiosity, and start to buy into the long-form web they were weaving. You had to go all in on the Q-drops. You had to accept the idea that some high-level government official was posting on an anime message board. Your primary medium for learning about Q was a series of really poorly made videos and memes that looked like they were cobbled together by some mortally wounded river otter in its last dying breath. A majority of people predominantly still stared at you like you were fucking insane when you started preaching about this stuff. Joe M wrapped everything up in a really professional-looking package. 
with all of the hard edges of fringe lunacy sanded away into a really vague message that, honestly, if you didn't know what Q specifically was and what the video was secretly alluding to, you couldn't argue with. It focused on the idea of corruption in the government and media, exploitation of labor, oppression of the working class by the ruling class. Show this video to the same people who looked at you like you were crazy when you told them about Q before, and soon enough, they would become Q followers themselves. It's an ingenious work of propaganda, simultaneously appealing to a massive amount of people while also giving zero actual factual information and concealing its true purpose. To make you believe in a made-up story that explains away all of the world's woes and a package as neatly gift-wrapped as the video itself. Have you ever wondered why we go to war? Or why you never seem to be able to get out of debt? Why there is poverty, division, and crime? What if I told you there was a reason for it all? What if I told you it was done on purpose? What if I told you that those who were corrupting the world, poisoning our food, and igniting conflict were themselves about to be permanently eradicated from the earth? You might think that an idealistic fantasy. Well, let me tell you a story. Oh, the Punisher logo? That's Joe M's logo. <laughs> Stock footage from a Viagra ad? This video kind of is just like the Viagra ad of QAnon. Casey Anthony? This is all over the place. That farmer bro? This is uh, Joe M took a community college cinematography class a little too seriously. <laughs> this is so try hard. He uses footage of Beyonce a lot. It feels like he has some kind of weird fixation on Beyonce specifically. ...and can be elected as our leaders. If a criminal became the president, imagine what they could achieve. They could use the full weight of their executive power to commit much larger crimes and ensure they and their friends were enriched to the fullest extent possible. A criminal president could create alliances with other criminal presidents and then collaborate on more global criminal activities. Anything goes. Drug running, human trafficking, whatever makes the big bucks. The 20th century was turbulent with war, economic disaster, famines, and displacement. We have always accepted these things as just human nature, and simply the way the world works. Something inevitable, and due to the weaknesses of human nature that drive us to these actions. This is where we were all tragically wrong. You are not a criminal. I'm not a criminal. So how can we just assume that it is human nature that is driving all this pain and misery? What if it wasn't human nature at all, and as a result of something more deliberate? We were taught that capitalism was the cause of a massive rich-poor divide and the reason for poverty, which in turn is the reason for war, crime, and starvation. Others were taught that communism, the system of equal wealth across all people, was really to blame for the mess. But you see, folks, it is none of these things. It is not our nature to fight and be racist. It is not in our nature to rob from others. What you must learn is that it was the criminals all along. Yes, they got power. More power than a criminal should ever have. They rose to the top of media companies that control our news and entertainment. They sent it to the top of the banking system, also to the Oval Office, to Brussels, to the Vatican, to the Crown. They crept in quietly. They became leaders of agricultural companies who have control over our food supply. Also big pharmaceutical companies, the ones we trust to help us when we're sick. Nobody stopped them, and they just recruited more criminals to help them. First, they accumulated the world's wealth. 
They invented a system of money called central banking, which lends money to governments with interest, placing countries into eternal debt. People's wealth got less. Their wealth got more. Much more. When a criminal is already as rich as they can get, then protecting their ill-gotten gains becomes the priority. Angry citizens tired of being poor are a major obstacle and can revolt if they suffer enough. The criminals needed to prevent this. So they diverted attention to the last remaining competitor, the people of the world. You and me. We were not happy being ruled by criminals and having to work three jobs just to survive. They know we won't accept it. So they used their control of the media to set black against white, woman against man, young against old, Muslim against Christian. They convinced us we were the problem so that we would fight and destroy ourselves. To get it done faster, they attacked all aspects of humanity that make us strong. Like family, using their influence over culture, they popularized lifestyle choices that led to a surge in broken homes, lost youth, and substance abuse. I could talk all day about how else they deliberately weakened us and it would turn your stomach. We were just trying to get on with living. So where are all the good guys? Good people just want to get married, have kids, make a living, and enjoy their liberty. Well, they were good guys. What is he even talking about? This doesn't even... Yeah, it's just, it's completely vague stuff. Like, it's so vague that, other than a few specific little things here and there that are pointed, like what he just said, like the whole pitting of black against white, obviously that has, like, more of a specific viewpoint. But other than a few pieces of dialogue here and there... It's just it like I said, it's like the medication ad of QAnon where he's not really saying anything. He's just saying a bunch of like vague platitudes, which are like, yeah, there's corruption. I, I agree. It's designed to grab the lowest common denominator of people possible by just being completely vague. I'm not going to watch the whole thing, but I wanted to watch a good chunk of it because I really wanted to give a sense of like what he was saying in long form and kind of the tone of it and the vibe of it because it really comes into play of kind of the theme uh, that I want to explore throughout this whole episode. The, the video is 13 minutes long. We watched five minutes of it and the rest of the video is pr fairly just the same as that. It's just these vague things of what if the world was corrupt and people were being held down and it wasn't our fault? What if we were all like not not involved and so we could just not share in the stuff but if we were involved then we could share with one another because we all just naturally want to love each other, but racism isn't our natural. That's the Clintons. There's some pretty wild mental gymnastics that are going on in the uh, QAnon belief system. As I talked about last episode with Will, just this idea that they find and they, they take like the actual issues that really are going on in the world that we all can agree mostly are happening. But they find and replace all of the things which are like systemic oppression of marginalized groups and the toxic effects of global capitalism. And they replace that stuff with evil cannibals because they want to they want they know that there's the problem. They recognize the problem that we all recognize, but they do not want to acknowledge the cause of the problem because they have been trained to believe that those things are good. The funniest part is, take away the punchline of Q working behind the scenes to save us all, and the video is nearly identical to some kind of far-left communist propaganda. It's amazing how much these far-right extremists basically agree with the ideals of communism, but they just simply find and replace, quote, and capitalism is at fault with, quote, and a cult of Jew cannibals are at fault. 
It's funny, but also incredibly sad to look at these things from a top-down perspective and see how narrowly we all almost come together to unite on things, but narrowly miss each other by small fractions due to a basic refusal to communicate in good faith about anything. Everybody 98% of the way to joining forces and actually changing the world for the better, but that tiny 2% making a world of difference as the people we actually should be fighting with take it and frame it back to us in a way that ensures we continue to be divided forever. But I sadly digress on my way to explaining how a small group of opportunistic grifters exploited commonalities in the human condition to turn the very things we all universally agree on into hyper-specific sticking points that make us hate each other by spinning them into distorted versions of themselves to be weaponized in a culture war in order to mainstream a literal false idol. Around this time, QAnon billboards started to be spotted around the country, such as this one in southern Oklahoma. So people started taking pictures of billboards that they were spotting around the country. This one just has a giant Q that has the American flag pattern on it. And it says, where we go one, we go all. And then it has hashtag the Great Awakening. And then it has a website URL, do you know Q.com? Do you remember the the first time you ever saw Q stuff in the world? Do you have a memory of spotting like a shirt or like a sticker or something? I don't know if it was the first time, but I remember a time when I was at, I don't remember if I was at the Hollywood Bowl or if I was leaving the Hollywood Bowl because I worked there briefly. And I don't remember if I was at the Hollywood Bowl or if I was leaving the Hollywood Bowl to take the train back to my house late at night. But there was a guy wearing a red Trump hat and a QAnon t-shirt walking down Highland towards the subway station. And I was walking behind him. And it was the only reason I remember the Q shirt is because I didn't really. I mean, I kind of knew what Q was, but I didn't really. And I specifically remember it because that area is not an area where you expect to see somebody in a giant red Make America Great Again hat. Yeah, that's interesting because if you're talking about the Hollywood Bowl times and that was sometime in 2018. So you actually I've been following QAnon for a while, but you saw a wild QAnon long before I ever did. Because the first time I ever saw any Q stuff in real life was on the way back, on the road trip back from the Midwest back to L.A. in in the end of October of 2020. And we had just started running the Chris Hansen episodes, which was in September. I, I was editing those while I was in the Med- Midwest. And so it was on our way back from the Midwest. And I saw while we were driving through Las Vegas... We, we drove next to a car that had a uh, a sticker that said that was just a, Q, a gold Q. Next to it was a sticker that was like a white rabbit. And then next to it was a sticker, a decal, a sticker decal that just said WWG1 WGA. And I was like, oh, my God, a QAnon guy which I had never seen before in real life. Never seen anybody who talked about it. This was before it like became a real big conversation that everybody was talking about. So at the time I was like, yeah, I mean, this is like a big thing that's scary on the Internet, but nobody in real life knows about this. And so it was mind blowing to me to see somebody in real life with real QAnon shit. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it was when I was leaving the bowl, because I was like, honestly, it was the hat. I wouldn't have even really noticed the shirt. The timeline is mushy for me. I feel like I knew what Q was at that point, but I don't remember when I really, yeah, I don't really remember when I really learned the intricacies of it. So anyway, you guys got to talking, you became friends that night and... Yeah, and then I got red-pilled. Yeah, he now lives with you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Upon being shared on the internet, it quickly went viral. It was later confirmed that the billboard was in fact real. When contacted, the company that rented out the billboard space would not disclose who had paid for it. After this, a few other billboards were also spotted in other areas of the country. Clearly, there was some kind of shift happening at this time. 
On June 28, 2018, a Time Magazine article listed Q among the 25 most influential people on the internet in 2018. Counting more than 130,000 related discussion videos on YouTube, Time cited the wide range of the conspiracy theory and its more prominent followers in news coverage. But all the while, QAnon was gaining in popularity. The people actually knowledgeable of the true movement below the slowly burgeoning factory of radicalization were poking holes in its very validity. For instance, one of the earliest, most popular, and admittedly uncanny on the surface Q proofs was also completely debunked shortly after the release of Joe M's Q sizzle reel and the appearance of these billboards. Remember, Q proofs are supposed evidence Q followers use to prove that Q is real. The original Q proof was from November 6th, 2017, when at 5.07 p.m., Q posted this. Nothing is random, everything has meaning. Plus, 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 Q. Minutes later, 5.15 p.m., Donald Trump tweeted this. My visit to Japan and friendship with Prime Minister Abe will yield many benefits for our great country. Massive military and energy orders happening. Plus, 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 exclamation point. Now, that's admittedly pretty freaky. Using three plus signs in a tweet is just not a typical thing to do. It doesn't make any sense in the context of the tweet, and it doesn't seem like something that can just be chalked up to coincidence. As I said before, little Q proofs like this, despite how compelling they are, don't really make up for the fact that Q has been posting for four years and none of their predictions about mass arrests or breaking up of child trafficking rings have come true. But still, how did Q do that? How did they know that Trump was going to tweet that minutes beforehand? This had been held up by Q followers as one of the most definitive Q proofs. Not only was it a zero delta, aka a Q drop that predicts or coincides with something in the real world on the same day, which is the most coveted of Q proofs, but it also directly predicted something Trump was going to say verbatim, which is rare. Most Q proofs are vague correlations of two unrelated things where Q followers have drawn some kind of pattern between the two. The answer is that Q didn't. This proof is as a result of Q followers, whether purposely or through ignorance and poor due diligence, not taking time zones into account. On July 4th, 2018, a Reddit user by the name of Kamasian posted in r slash cult headquarters, a subreddit dedicated to chronicling and debunking Q's claims, pointing out that the Trump tweet had actually come before the Q drop, not after, and that the Q drop came in a thread that was actually discussing the tweet. Q's drop was in response to Trump's tweet, and they were simply saying that the plus 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 symbols had some kind of secret meaning. But because the timestamps on both Twitter and 8chan show the time in your current time zone, somebody had screenshotted the Trump tweet in a different time zone than whomever screenshotted the Q drop in 8chan, incorrectly making it seem like the Trump tweet had come after the Q drop instead of before because of the time difference, continuing the theme that most of this movement is based on shoddy research and confirmation bias. There are a couple of great resources debunking almost every single Q proof, as well as the few studies showing that the correlation between Q drop times and the times that Trump tweets aren't statistically significant like so many Q followers believe, but the last time I included long-form mathematical analysis in the show, you all complained, so I'll link those in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Talking about the time that I included that detailed mathematical analysis of how the world couldn't possibly be flat. And everybody was like, I hated that. Also on July 4th, the Hillsborough County Republican Party shared on its official Facebook and Twitter accounts a YouTube video on QAnon, calling them a, quote, mysterious anonymous inside leaker of deep state activities and counteractivities by President Trump. The posts were soon deleted. On July 15th, the Apple Store pulled QDrops, a paid app that delivered all the latest QDrops directly to your phone whenever they were posted, which was listed as the number one most popular paid app in the App Store in the category of entertainment and the 10th most popular paid app overall. 
The app had launched in April, and it was allowed to live on the App Store until NBC News inquired to Apple about their support of the app in July. On July 29th, another IRL QAnon incident occurred. Early in the day, Q posted a drop on 8chan, showing a picture of the outside of an office building, along with its address. In the drop, they also included a link to the official website for Michael Avenatti's law firm. Avenatti was the lawyer representing Stormy Daniels in her ongoing legal case against Donald Trump and his former lawyer, Michael Cohen. An hour later, Q posted a drop featuring a picture of a man walking away from Avenatti's office carrying a smartphone in one hand and some kind of protruding object sticking out from between his fingers in the other. The object could have been some car keys, but many, including Avenatti, suggested it might have been a weapon. In the drop, Q said this. Offices of MA. Work on Sunday? Who is supplying fees? Who is financing? Q. In a follow-up drop directly afterward, in reference to the same image, Q then said this. Five-minute delay. Message sent. Q. The entire ordeal obviously freaked out Avenatti, who got authorities involved. But how was Avenatti involved? Back in June, Q posted a drop featuring a webcam photo from the Skunk Bay Weather website, showing an alleged missile flying through the air off the coast of Whibdy Island, Washington. The theory being that the missile had been part of a deep state plot to shoot down Air Force One during Trump's flight to Singapore to meet with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. In actuality, the object in the image was an image artifact of a medical airlift helicopter searchlight caught by a 20-second exposure in low light. But that didn't stop the Whipty Island missile from being accepted into the Q cannon, or Quanon. Quanon, Quanon, Q-Anannon. It's not Q, it's not Q-Anannon. I'm, I'm going to reference the word many times throughout the rest of this episode, and I, just for efficiency's sake, I don't want to have to say Quanannon every time. It'll be a bazookopolyps thing all over again. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bazookopolyps is very hard to say. Later on in July, Q linked the Whibby Island missile to the false Hawaiian missile strike alarm we covered in the previous episode. Q claims that the missile strike had actually been triggered by the Whibby Island missile, but that the missile was unauthorized and shot down by F-16 fighters carrying a Class 5 specialized weapons package. So basically some kind of like anti-missile weapon that's able to shoot targeted missiles out of the sky before they hit their target. So how does Avenatti factor into this? Well, the webcam photo from Whibby Island showing the alleged missile had been posted online by the Skunk Bay weather website on June 11th. The day before, on June 10th, Avenatti tweeted a screenshot from the movie Top Gun showing a fighter jet in the crosshairs of another jet along with the text, This week promises to be very interesting. The theory that arose, of course, was that Avenatti was in on the plot to shoot down Air Force One and had prior knowledge of it, which is how he was able to tweet a reference one day before it was supposed to occur. Was Avenatti more than likely just melodramatically tweeting about how he had some kind of smoking gun new evidence that was sure to crush Trump in court during his ongoing legal battle? Yes. Is it possible that he was secretly alluding to a plot to assassinate Trump via a missile? Sure, I guess. But it really comes back to the obvious question that arises every single time one of these supposed clues are spotted. Why in God's name would these people openly post references to their crimes in a way that would implicate themselves? Don't you find it just a bit too convenient that the hidden symbolism being left by the deep state cabal is just obvious enough to be easily spotted by random regular people on the internet? Don't you think the messages would be slightly harder to decode? But again, that's the entire appeal of QAnon. It's a game. It features puzzles and clues. And those puzzles and clues are just easy enough so that the average Q follower can quote-unquote solve them, but shrouded in enough pseudo-intellectual mystique and false complexity to make them feel smart and superior for doing it. It's the ARG equivalent of watching the Big Bang Theory and feeling superior for laughing at really smart physics jokes that low-key aren't actually smart physics jokes. 
They're jokes written for lower-than-average intelligence that are dressed up with words that give them the illusion of being smart. Around this time, a theory started popping up about the supposed child trafficking campsite that had been discovered in the outskirts of Tucson, Arizona, the one we covered in the last episode. The theory wasn't new, not to the deeply red-pilled QAnon believers. It had been around since before Q even existed, but this was the first time it was cropping up into the mainstream. The theory was that the Tucson campsite had been used as an adrenochrome harvesting site. If you remember correctly, the concept of adrenochrome was actually first canonized by 4chan Epfarf veteran and QAnon predecessor FBI Anon in their made-up bullshit reality distortions. But the concept had been cannibalized, pun definitely intended, and integrated into the Q mythology early on. Not by Q themselves, who honestly largely stays away from the truly supernatural and science fiction stuff in their drops. The actual output of Q is pretty tame compared to the added details and theories contributed by the Q audience. But either way, by this time, Q believers were fully all in on the adrenochrome theory. So what is adrenochrome? There are multiple answers to that. To Q believers, adrenochrome is a powerful hallucinogenic drug that is harvested from the adrenal glands of human beings, namely children. The deep state cabal elites largely run their global child trafficking rings in order to collect children to harvest adrenochrome from. The adrenochrome not only offers them a powerful psychedelic high, but it also has youth-restoring properties that keep the elite pedophile Democrats looking young and healthy. The kicker is that the adrenochrome becomes more potent and its effects more powerful if the human subject is terrified and in a tremendous amount of pain prior to it being harvested, which explains why the cabal ritualistically tortures children. Isn't there an episode of there's an episode of X Files that's just this plot? There's like a guy in Hollywood who kidnaps young people and like siphons the adrenaline off of them and their blood, and he's like an old Hollywood producer. And Mulder and Scully have to go stop him. Like this is just like a shitty X Files episode. You're pointing to the entire crux of this whole thing, which is all of these people, namely the people who created the QAnon mythology, watched a bunch of movies and TV shows in the 90s and were like, you think I'm going to say no? <laughs> That's absolutely where it came from. I'm even going to go into it right now about where this came from in, in the canon of pop culture. That's the whole thing. All this stuff is just built off of like weird cobbled together details from the X-Files and random like Tom Clancy novels and, and movies from the 90s. However, the elites have become addicted to the high and youth-preserving effects of the drug. And so their need for capturing and torturing more and more children grows every single day. Andrinochrome is, of course, consumed by deep state members like Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, John Podesta, Oprah Winfrey, and many others. Also, is John Podesta really that high up there? He's not, no. I mean, okay, there's a part of me that could emotionally maybe buy that, like, Hillary and, o and Obama, like, they have access to these other aspects of life. Oprah Winfrey is so rich that she has to find new frontiers to satiate herself. But John Podesta seems like the type of guy who just struggles to pay a mortgage. Yeah, but they have to because of his specific role. There are certain people that get elevated to higher levels of importance within QAnon for convenience sake. Be because John Podesta was the person who the emails were leaked from, he automatically gets this upgrade to first class because he was the crux of the beginning of this thing. We have to make him more important in the story in order for the whole thing to work. In reality, adrenochrome actually exists. It's a chemical compound produced from the oxidation of adrenaline. The compound was developed in the 50s and was at first believed to potentially be a cure for schizophrenia. Now it's used in some dietary supplements and can actually be legally purchased in small doses. 
There are documented examples of people taking Indrenochrome to observe its effects and concluding that it doesn't produce any kind of significant psychedelic experience. So how did Q-believers come to associate this completely mundane compound with their stories about child trafficking cabals? In 1954, doctors Abram Hoffer and Humphrey Osmond conducted a study that claimed that adrenochrome caused psychedelic effects in subjects similar to LSD and could potentially cure schizophrenia and other mental illnesses. The study was flawed and never produced any kind of meaningful or provable results, and the compound's use as a schizophrenia cure or hallucinogenic drug never materialized. However, it caught the attention of author Aldous Huxley, who regularly followed scientific news and incorporated concepts from studies into his work. Huxley included references to adrenochrome as a psychedelic drug in his 1954 book, The Doors of Perception. It's unclear if Huxley played a part in inspiring this or not, but in the 1971 book Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson, an accompanying 1998 film starring Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro, the main characters in the story make references to adrenochrome as a powerful hallucinogenic drug harvested from the adrenal glands that make, quote, pure mescaline seem like ginger beer. The conspiracy theory about adrenochrome that was incorporated into QAnon could have potentially come from any of these sources, although I think it's most likely that, much like myself and all of my friends in high school in the early 2000s, FBI Anon was most likely a huge fan of the Fear and Loathing movie, and that's where they got it from. And if you thought that theory was far-fetched, well, kindly make peace with your current self, stroke your hair, and gently cradle yourself in your loving arms as you rock yourself to sleep letting yourself drift into the warm abyss of unconsciousness where nothing can ever hurt you. And when you're sure your current self has finally faded into the inky darkness of slumber, smother yourself with a pillow because your old self is dead. Long live the new self, the self that is stronger, more jaded, better able to handle what you're about to hear. <laughs> Around this time in late July of 2018, Trump started ramping up his nationwide rallies largely in support of the upcoming midterm elections at the end of the year. And the rallies were notable for many things, but there was one thing in particular that caught the eagle eyes of devout QAnon followers. There was one man who seemed to be present at each and every one of the rallies, regardless of where they were in the country. This man was following Trump on tour, almost like some kind of groupie or one of those people that travels with the Grateful Dead and attends all of their shows. And honestly, he kind of looked like a Grateful Dead fan. His name was Vincent Fusca. A hippie-ish-looking man in his 50s with shoulder-length hair, a dark complexion, a peculiarly darker 5 o'clock shadow on his face, thin wire-rimmed glasses, usually donning a fedora. Imagine Tommy Chong if he decided to become a Gamergate troll. Or perhaps John Lennon if he walked into a Kohl's department store and said, Just fuck up my entire shit, fam. And also, make it seem like I'm wearing blackface in some uncanny way you can't quite put your finger on. Or maybe Larry David if you replaced his neurotic charm with back of the porno shop vibes. Dude, for real. He's the, Vincent Fusca is the type of guy that would come into the comic book store that I worked at in high school and try and buy exclusively Red Sonja, Vampirella, and Witchblade comics. And you're always just kind of like, you know that porn exists, right? Yeah, this is an even creepier story, but Vincent Fusca reminds me exactly of a guy who used to come into Borders where I worked every week. He would buy a stack of porno mags and it's like, what are you doing? Like last resort, you go to a porno shop and buy porn magazines or porn videos, DVDs or whatever, like as a last resort, because honestly, why don't you just go on the Internet? What are you doing? But especially why are you coming to a Borders and buying these? And you buy stacks of them every every week. 
And then one week, he bought a stack of porno mags and then an issue of a magazine that was like for, it was like a, I don't even know how, what it is what, or how to describe it. But it was a magazine for people who were in the like young, like the teenage cheerleader world. If you're in some kind of thing that you have a hobby or whatever. All right. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, like a sports magazine or whatever. Yeah. Like here's the latest like trends and who here's who's like winning all these national competitions. And here's where you can order like uniforms in bulk. But it was like cheerleaders, 15 year old cheerleaders. So he, this dude buys a sack of porno magazines and then a cheerleader magazine full of 15 year old girls. And it's the, the combination here. It's it tells the story like there's no plausible deniability. You can't just be like, yeah, I bought these porno mags for myself and then I bought the cheerleader magazine for my daughter. And and, and the thing is, is, this guy just didn't realize he had no idea that there would that somebody would draw that would deduce that there was some kind of correlation between the two things. And I was just like, what the fuck? And that guy reminds me of Vincent Fusca. This interesting looking guy started popping up at Trump rallies all across the US and he was easy to spot by the Q crowd. And because literally nothing can slip by these people without them concocting some kind of elaborate theory around it, a faction of Q followers started to claim that Vincent Fusca was actually JFK Jr. in disguise. If you don't know, John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the 35th president of the United States, John F. Kennedy Sr., a lawyer and journalist was killed in a plane crash on July 16, 1999, along with his wife and sister-in-law. The wreckage of the plane, along with the bodies of the three people, were found five days later. Kennedy and the other two passengers' bodies were autopsied, revealing they had all died upon impact. However, in the lore of QAnon, JFK Sr., even though he was a Democrat, is a hero. According to the Q mythology, he is one of the few presidents in the history of the United States, along with Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, and Donald Trump, who was not a deep state controlled puppet and was actually assassinated for his attempt to uncover and expose the corruption of the cabal. It's the reason why QAnon's slogan, where we go one, we go all, is claimed to have been a message etched into a bell aboard one of JFK's ships, even though it was a quote from a Jeff Bridges movie from the 90s. And in turn, some Q followers believe that JFK Jr. was carrying on his father's legacy and fighting to uncover the schemes of the satanic elite. But he knew he had to do something drastic in order to escape the same fate as his father. And so on that fateful day in 1999, JFK Jr. faked his own death along with that of his wife and sister-in-law and went into hiding, only to re-emerge one day when another man like his father ascended into the highest office in the land and vowed to take down the deep state cabal from within. When this occurred, JFK Jr. would reveal himself, join forces with that man, and together they would drain the motherfucking swamp. This original theory that JFK Jr. was still alive was first circulated by Q influencer Liz Crokin. And that man, of course, was Donald Trump. And so, slowly but surely, JFK Jr. was subtly making his presence known, staying close to Trump but from a distance, not fully revealing himself to the greater public, but winking and nodding at the more observant disciples of Q. Some even theorized that JFK Jr. was Q, but either way, he was definitely Vincent Fusca, that weird, hippie-looking dude going to all the Trump rallies. There's Vincent Fusca next to a picture of JFK Jr. What do you think, Dave? I think that if Vincent Fusca is JFK Jr., then I am Elijah Wood. I mean, that that's kind of a bad example because you look, you resemble Elijah Wood way more. Yeah, but Elijah Wood is an alive person. He's fucking alive. Yeah, I, there's just, there's no way. His nose is a different shape. His face is a different shape. 
this man looks to be a good five to six inches shorter than JFK Jr. was. There's just no way. There's just straight up. They're just not the same people. That's not. <laughs> it's it's stupid to even waste time of me comparing this and listing all the ways because you might as well be saying that you and I are the same person. Like we're just fundamentally not physically that similar. Like these guys, these people are not. They're not the same person. Yeah, you say that though, but f- apparently for months of the show. People thought that my voice was your voice and your voice was my voice. Which makes me angry because my jokes are hilarious. And the fact that I wasn't getting credit for those jokes, there's backlisted righteous indignation right there. Hey, I I have backlisted righteous indignation for you just for no reason whatsoever getting credit for the fucking blood libel song that I sang. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's a bunch of people in... In the group and Discord who thought that I was singing the blood libel song. Blood libel! I don't even remember the fake lyrics anymore. There's a conspiracy theory that you were the one singing it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But I didn't. That was you. And there's no way that Vincent Fusca is JFK Jr. There's just no way. Yeah, I can't even Vincent Vincent Fusca looks like because I tap myself out pre-preparing those Vincent Fusca looks like comparisons. Vincent Fusca looks like the guy who came in third in a Ron Jeremy lookalike competition. And then like the the prize for coming in third was that Ron Jeremy kicked the shit out of you. Yeah. Vincent Fusco looks like the type of guy who is the only f- remaining film projectionist in Encino, California. And then every week, Ron Jeremy came to that theater and kicked the shit out of you and was like, this is a dying art form. What are you doing here? Digital projectors of the future. You don't even have to stand here and man them. They just work automatically. The projection booth just becomes this weird ghost town that's creepy to go up into when you want to get a, a box full of new cups. And then you there becomes all these legends of how there's ghosts up there. Vincent Fusco looks like the type of guy who shows up to a party wearing a blazer, an Iron Maiden t-shirt, ironed jeans, and cowboy boots, and only refers to himself as a producer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Vincent Fusco looks like the type of person who claims that he owns many leather-bound books, but you go into his apartment and it's just like a bed without a box spring on the floor, like a mattress on the floor and like open Domino's boxes. Yeah. The real thing is like you can, you almost, you kind of understand why this conspiracy theory was created about this guy because there's this real life neurological phenomenon, which I'm blanking on the name of right now, but I talked to you about it a while back, several weeks ago, I was texting you about it. And I wish I could remember the name, but there's this phenomenon where sort of neurotypical people, they whenever they come up against a concept or a sort of circumstantial roadblock that is unexpected for them, it's not something that they would expect to happen. Whenever something sticks out to somebody as this is not the way that I thought this was going to go or this is not the way this usually goes, they'll like they'll edit it to make sense to them. And so you can understand why people would create this conspiracy theory about this guy, because Vincent Fusca, like all joking aside, Vincent Fusca looks like he's like somebody in a costume. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yes, he really does. No one would choose to wear that fucking trilby. You would only wear that trilby if you're a secret rich person, part of one of the most famous and uh, well-connected dynastic families in American history. And you're in hiding. Yeah. And there's certain people like this in the world that just like I've always thought that Bill Maher looks like a person that's in age makeup. 
Mm-hmm. And it's there's people like this where it's just something about them sticks out where you're like, you look like you're wearing like an old like Doc Brown from Back to the Future style, like old person makeup. And Vincent Fusca looks like he is like a, a person who's wearing a wig and has like a fake tan on their face and like a fake beard. You know how in the Jinx where Durst was like one of the times that he was on the run for murder, he was apprehended with when he had shaved his eyebrows and he was like, well, I did it to make myself not look like me or like how our dude John McAfee with the baby powder in his hair. Yeah. Yeah. It's that same kind of logic where you're just you like lull yourself into a weird false sense of security by wearing these small kind of bizarre changes or whatever. Yeah. So I just I really I understand why these Q followers who are like already looking for patterns and things see this person at the Trump rally and are just like, there's something going on with that guy. That's not normal. That's not a real guy. That's something. It's important to note that many Q followers do not believe this theory. It's not a universally accepted part of the canon. In fact, many Q followers have consistently tried to distance themselves from the Vincent Fusca JFK Jr. theory because they feel like it discredits the movement and gives the mainstream media and critics ammunition to mock and trivialize it. They aren't wrong. Q even ended up officially going on record denouncing the theory on December 12th, 2018. Earlier in the day for drop number 2605, Q posted on 8chan saying, Q&A. In response, somebody asked, Is JFK Jr. alive? In drop number 2611, Q simply responded, No. None of this stopped the theory from becoming popular in large pockets of the QAnon community, leading to hundreds of theorizing posts on 8chan, discussions in countless YouTube videos, many QAnon believers walking up to Vincent at rallies and taking pictures with him, turning him into a sort of mini-celebrity within the movement, merchandise featuring him being produced and sold, and the ballooning of his Twitter following, as well as that of several other fake Vincent Fusco accounts claiming to be him. But as the Trump rallies began to ramp up in July, something else happened. It wasn't just Vincent JFK Jr. in a wig and blackface Fusca hanging out in the crowd. There were also open and proud QAnon followers. At a July 31st Trump rally, several attendees in the crowd sported Q t-shirts and held up signs saying things like, We are Q and espousing some of the most popular QAnon theories, such as the idea that Seth Rich was murdered by the deep state. Just a, just a Trump rally, but then you got people out there, Q shirts, holding up signs that say QAnon sent us, and where we go when we go all, which, you know, is it, it, it doesn't really have the same bite now, because we're all very familiar with QAnon, but back then, it's like, holy shit, this shit is like going places. There may have been rallies in the past with one or two people sporting Q shirts, but this time it was a big enough turnout to be noticeable. There were many events in the lead up to this that slowly mainstreamed the movement. People had taken notice before. It was starting to be covered more and more. But this rally was definitively the moment when it could no longer be ignored. QAnon was officially entered into the mainstream news cycle canon. Here's some CNN coverage of the rally that came out the day after on August 1st. Photos of missiles and mysterious strangers, rants about a shadow government, Freemasons, secret symbols, and predictions of a world about to change. All of this is part of the conspiracy stew cooked up by QAnon, an internet conspiracy persona, some followers of whom showed up at the president's most recent rally, and many of whom see him as a hero, like them, ready to embrace wild theories, to claim secret plots against him, and to attack anyone who says otherwise. Fake news, fake news. 
So this, so this is truly just the first time that this is being talked about in the in the news like this. Like Pizzagate was talked about in the news because there was a big event or surrounding it where somebody like went to this place with a gun and shot. And events that were related to QAnon have been talked about in the news, but they never actually talked about QAnon. But after this rally specifically, there was just a massive surge of articles and videos put out by a bunch of news organizations talking about Q for the first time ever. And that same day, something unprecedented happened, something that nobody could have ever fathomed even a few months prior. The White House was officially questioned about QAnon. Two quickies about last night in Tampa. Does, first of all, does the president encourage the support of people who showed up last night in these QAnon and Blacks for Trump fringe groups? Um, and secondly, is the White House willing to say right now, in view of what happened with one of our TV colleagues last night, that it is wrong for his most vocal supporters to be menacing toward journalists doing their jobs in a situation like that or in any situation? Uh, on the first part, uh, the president condemns and denounces any group that would uh, incite violence against another individual um, and certainly doesn't support uh, groups that would promote that type of behavior. We've, we've been clear about that a number of times uh, since the beginning of the administration. On the second part of your question, um, the president, as I just said, does not support uh, violence against anyone and or anything. And we've been very clear um, every single time we've been asked about that. When it comes to the media, the president does think that the media media holds a responsibility. Uh, we so fully support a free press, but there also comes a high level of Yeah, it's just such a, such a dog shit way. I mean, this, it's just going to continue on like this, and we're going to talk about this many times later on in, in this series. But the press had just uh, at every step of the way has just handled this in such a dog shit fashion. That's just not the way to ask that question. It's so easy to just pivot around it when you're just like, does President Trump support these groups like QAnon? And then they can just say something generic and be like, President Trump doesn't support any violent groups or whatever. And then the QAnon followers can be like, but we're not violent. It's it, this fake news media framing things in this way. Ask them, is there a secret operation within the White House where Trump is working with a high-level insider named Q to topple a deep state pedophile cabal led by Hillary Clinton. Ask that question, that specific question, but nobody just, but whether they're afraid to or they just don't realize that they're asking it in a terrible way, just nobody ever does. From made up ramblings of a handful of 4chan anons trolling the boards to a legitimate part of the national news cycle being discussed in the White House press room in less than a year, astounding. There was an explosion of media attention on that day of August 1st, more than there had ever been in the last 10 months of the movement's existence. Articles and videos were published like, We are Q, a deranged conspiracy cult leaps from internet to the crowd at Trump's MAGA tour. By the Washington Post. How the false fringe QAnon conspiracy theory aims to protect Trump. By PBS NewsHour. Far-right group QAnon pushes false conspiracy theories. By NBC Nightly News and many more. And this MSNBC coverage really sets the tone for how the media was choosing to cover and speak about this strange new movement they were trying to understand and reckon with in the context of the current political landscape in real time. If you tuned into Donald Trump's rally in Tampa, Florida last night, you might have noticed a somewhat ubiquitous Q symbol on signs in the crowd. And if you are lucky enough not to have to had to interact with this idea, let me take a moment to explain. Those Trump supporters you see waving around the letter Q printed on signs and on their T-shirts are followers of Q, a anonymous poster on the message boards 4chan and 8chan. 
Q claims to be sharing insider government secrets with the masses and has spawned an entire movement, QAnon, which um, essentially believes the entirety of the Democratic Party and much of Hollywood are conspiring and running an underground pedophile sex trafficking ring. Even Tom Hanks. And the followers of Q uh, also believe that President Donald Trump is working secretly with the generals to expose this entire sick thing and that the Mueller probe isn't actually investigating Donald Trump, but Robert Mueller and Donald Trump are actually investigating the Obamas and the Clintons, all of whom are wearing ankle bracelets because they've already been secretly indicted. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, your reaction is correct. This is all insane and incoherent. It is also shocking. The overarching theme of this media coverage being this kind of snide, smirking air of superiority. Heavy usage of words like unhinged, crazy, bizarre, and delusional. The signature holier-than-thou condescension and hand-waving of most mainstream liberal media when covering fringe aspects of society they don't really understand. Much like Alex Jones arrogantly thinking he was shutting down QAnon with his, quote, Q is compromised broadcast a few months prior, these writers and anchors were so sure that this was just a passing trend that could be churned up into fodder for mockery and right-wing dunk robotics. There were only a small handful of journalists in the mainstream that were actually addressing QAnon and what it was, a new burgeoning ideological movement that had potentially scary implications for the future. Articles like QAnon is terrifying, this is why, by Molly Roberts at the Washington Post, that were years ahead of the rest of the media establishment in actually addressing and analyzing the reasons for why the movement was growing, the underlying economic and social frustrations that drew people to the movement, and how it could potentially keep growing and become a serious domestic threat. It really can't be overstated how little of that discourse was occurring in the mainstream media and in our households during these early stages of the movement, how necessary it was for us to be having that conversation, and how much this self-righteous punching down of most liberal news and media organizations was just not helping at all. We could have had a real conversation about the movement, dedicated coverage to measured fact-checking and debunking of the claims, and showing in good faith that we were willing to consider the broad strokes of what was being said and give our honest disagreement with what was being laid out. Instead, it was just a bunch of smarmy white dudes trying out their awful amateur insult comic routines while sitting at news desks. Not only would this kind of reaction send the followers further down the rabbit hole as they were actively alienated by mainstream society, but it could only naturally make them feel like they were onto something if the mainstream media they were trained to believe was a lying propaganda machine was going so far out of their way to denigrate them in their beliefs. And for their part, a majority of conservative news orgs were either downplaying Q as a liberal boogeyman, outright ignoring it, or even worse, openly throwing up their hands and saying, Maybe these Q people are onto something. It was really mostly the indie journalists who had been covering the movement for a while that were being sober about the situation, like Mike Rothschild, who had posted an article titled, Why We Have to Talk About QAnon on August 2nd, in response to the sudden surge in media coverage being like, uh, guys, I've been following this for a while and maybe we should be taking this more seriously and not just actively roasting these people in the news. On the same day, David Karf, an associate professor at George Washington University and author of the books Analytic Activism and The Move-On Effect, posted a Medium article discussing QAnon as a fandom and ARG that I think really nails on the head, all the way back in these early stages, what was truly terrifying about the movement. QAnon, immersive gaming, and the impending nihilistic collapse of civic life. When you dissolve the boundary between politics and entertainment, things start to get weird. That's what I found myself thinking last night as I read the latest story of how the dumbest possible conspiracy theory, QAnon, has climbed out of the darkest recesses of the internet. The striking thing about QAnon is that we've celebrated mass behavior like this for years, just in a different context. 
take a look at this Wired story from December of 2007. The article, by Frank Rose, is titled Secret Websites, Coded Messages, The New World of Immersive Gaming. It describes an intricate alternate reality game, ARG, that was designed around the release of Nine Inch Nails' 2007 album Year Zero. Nine Inch Nails' Year Zero was a concept album telling the story of revolutionary dissonance fighting against a mind-controlling government in an alternate history. The Year Zero ARG spanned months, engaging several thousand fans, dropping clues that could be scavenged at live shows or found online. A USB drive hidden in a bathroom stall, random bold-faced letters on a t-shirt revealing a web address or a telephone number. By the game's end, about 50 diehard fans were loaded into buses with blacked-out windows, deposited into a large warehouse, and treated to a private live show by the band. Fan communities dissecting clues are a central part of what Henry Jenkins celebrates as convergence culture. Think lost discussion boards or the way avid fan bases have combed through Mr. Robot and Westworld in recent years. Part of the reason we've entered into a new golden age of television is that creators have realized that they can tell more complex stories that reward an intense, connected fan base. QAnon fans are applying the same participatory behavior that we have celebrated in fiction fandom to real-world political drama. And why not? The boundaries between politics and entertainment have been collapsing for years. The entire Trump presidency operates like a reality TV show, completely divorced from any real stakes or substance. That's what makes this all so terrifying. Do these people really believe that Tom Hanks and Hillary Clinton are personally connected to massive pedophilia rings? Really? The pulsating heart of the QAnon theory is not a lunatic fringe denying the real consequences of a failing presidency. The heart of it is a devoted fan base constructing elaborate theories to make the story more fun and engaging. And if you start from the premise that nothing government does matters, then it's easy to come along for the ride. There's no real difference between Hillary Clinton and the smoke monster. They're just both characters on television. That's what alarms me most about the growth of QAnon. It's not that these people are unhinged and possibly armed. It's that we've lost the capacity to treat civics, governance, and public affairs as though they have actual stakes with actual consequences. The premise of the Trump presidency is nothing matters, so you should root for your side and heckle the opposing team. He encourages his supporters to treat Democrats and journalists as a rival fan base. And if politics and government are just another team with winners and losers, then why not boo and threaten Democrats as if they were the Duke basketball fans? QAnon is the natural endpoint of treating politics as entertainment. If it's all just storytelling, then the big fans will group together online, immerse themselves in the story, and try to make it more fun. On August 4th, former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer was asked to comment on QAnon in his Ask Me Anything session on the R the Donald subreddit. In response to the question, is Q legit, Spicer answered no. On August 6th, Whitney Phillips, assistant professor in the Communication and Rhetorical Studies Department of Syracuse University and author of This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Mapping the Relationship Between Online Trolling and Mainstream Culture, published an op-ed in The Guardian titled How Journalists Should Not Cover an Online Conspiracy Theory. She, like Rothschild, had been actually following the movement all along and in fact had been studying internet board troll culture for a decade. She knew her stuff when it came to addressing these kinds of internet-born extremist movements. As a part of her decade-long research, she published a report for Data and Society titled The Oxygen of Amplification, Better Practices for Reporting on Extremists, Antagonists, and Manipulators. And in her op-ed, she laid out the key bullet points for the report. 
The first strategy is, most basically, not to report on things. At least not until stories reach what Claire Wardle and Hussein Durakshan have identified as the tipping point, when the story becomes more relevant to people outside of the community in which the behavior occurs. The second strategy, particularly important when covering hate, is to employ what Donovan and Donna Boyd describe as strategic silence. Just because a group does or says something doesn't mean it bears repeating. There are other factors to consider before reporting, most notably, what impact the coverage will have on the targets of the potential story's subjects, whether the impact is further intimidation, dehumanization, or physical harm. Coverage isn't just about the coverage itself, in other words. How and whether to cover a story must also hinge on what the story might do and whose interests it will ultimately serve. In the case of QAnon, debunking and explainer stories can be interesting and helpful for readers who already believe the conspiracy is absurd. They provide those readers more information, greater contextual understanding, and a richer vocabulary for describing something they already know. For other audiences, however, attempts to debunk and explain the intricacies of a story can have a very different effect. First, the people spreading the conspiracy couldn't ask for a better outcome. Journalists covering the story helped spread the narrative so much further and so much faster than it would have traveled otherwise. Participants in QAnon's narrative have giddily affirmed exactly this point. Posts to the Great Awakening subreddit have outright thanked journalists for the coverage and for resulting wave in new participants. More concerningly, for those who sincerely believe the conspiracy to be true, or for those who may or may not be true believers, but who do truly mistrust mainstream journalism, debunking can actually serve to confirm the story. A logical, valid conclusion to draw if someone believes that everything journalists say is a lie. Beyond asking what impact a story might have, Journalists must ask what is not known about the story and how is this lack of knowledge undermining clear-headed threat assessments. For example, the overwhelming majority of QAnon coverage has taken for granted that people who participate in the QAnon narrative believe the narrative. Some sure seem to, but in an environment ruled by Poe's Law, an online axiom stating that sincerity online is often indistinguishable from satire, it is not possible to know who is genuinely sold on the narrative, who is pretending to be sold to mess with reporters, and who is doing a little bit of both. By operating on the unchallenged, unquestioning assumption that everyone who holds the proverbial or literal Q sign is fully convinced of the conspiracy's veracity, reporters don't just help spread the narrative, they lend credence to it. After all, Taking the narrative so seriously signals that it is in fact worth taking seriously. Reporters' credulous coverage also feeds into a range of unintended narratives for those who are actively engaged in media manipulation. It underscores journalists' gullibility and exploitability and is very funny to participants. For those who believe the narrative sincerely, it affirms that QAnon adherents are really onto something, otherwise mainstream journalists wouldn't have such a panic. The final question reporters must ask themselves stems from the fact that journalists aren't just part of the game of media manipulation. They're a trophy. Consequently, before they publish a word, journalists must seriously consider what role they end up playing in the narrative, and whose work they'll end up doing as a result. 
In the context of the QAnon story, participants' efforts to pressure, even outright harass reporters into engaging with the story has been widely interpreted as proof of how seriously participants take the story, and therefore as proof of how worried we all should be. We should be worried, but what we should be worried about is the fact that too many journalists have continued to respond how high when media manipulators demand they jump. A breath of fresh air to me, but a message that has largely gone unheeded by basically everybody. After the initial wave of mainstream exposure and reaction to QAnon, then came the honestly cringeworthy counter-conspiracy theories put forth by normie libs who just couldn't process what they were hearing. As began to be reported on by organizations like BuzzFeed News, people were starting to theorize that QAnon was actually a prank being pulled on Trump supporters by leftist or anarchist trolls. The BuzzFeed News article is titled, It's looking extremely likely that QAnon is a leftist prank on Trump supporters. However, there is zero evidence that it's extremely likely. The main meat of the theory was comprised of open speculation from leftist 4chan users and Twitter commentators, as well as the Italian performance art activist collective Luther Blissett, now called the Wu Ming Foundation, who had published the book Q under the collective in 1999, claiming that they were convinced it was a leftist prank. We mentioned their book in episode 2 of the QAnon series as being one of the possible inspirations for the concept of QAnon. As a reminder, it was a satirical religious novel about an unnamed Anabaptist religious radical traveling across Europe during the 16th century. He joins various movements that emerge following the Protestant Reformation. The whole time he's being pursued by a spy for the Roman Catholic Church named Q. The Wu Ming Foundation posted on Twitter, stating that they were convinced that QAnon had been directly inspired by their book and that it was likely leftist activists pranking the boomer alt-right. A guy using the moniker Q, obliquely posing as a state employee, going anon, is feeding tedious bullshit to Nazis. Um, looks like someone's using our novel Q and the Luther Blissett playbook in order to, what, take the piss out of the alt-right? Emoji of raising an eyebrow. The only way to defuse the whole moronic thing before it's too late, denounce it as a gigantic leftist anarchist prank, exploiting the right's gullibility for unknown, unspeakable purposes. An experiment in social engineering uses fascists as guinea pigs. The largest piece of evidence in support of this theory is the fact that in the 90s, facing a satanic panic in Italy similar to the one the US went through in the 80s, with several people being falsely accused of participating in satanic rituals and corrupting children, Luther Blissett launched a countrywide counter-initiative. Instead of trying to debunk the false accusations of the satanic cults, they instead fabricated more stories about satanic cult activity in cities all throughout Italy, manufacturing evidence and using actors as witnesses to these bogus stories. Their goal was to oversaturate the Italian media with hundreds of completely made-up stories so that the lines would be blurred between the real-life false accusations of the Italian religious right and their own intentional false accusations they were spreading. In the end, they eventually revealed that they were behind the majority of the accusations in order to show the public the inherent absurdity and fictional nature of this satanic epidemic. Dude, why don't we do a fucking episode about that? And while this story is incredibly fascinating and Luther Brissett may deserve a Deep Cuts episode of their own... Jesus, that is way cooler than anything we've done in a while. God damn, I love that. Yeah, we definitely need to, for sure. This still does not prove that QAnon was a similar operation. The whole thing is just as much of a conspiracy theory as QAnon itself is. A shadowy cabal of leftists secretly executing a wide-scale plan to distract conservatives and expose them as gullible idiots. That sounds really good to leftists, just like the beliefs of QAnon sound really good to QAnon followers. Large parts of the mainstream conservative establishment also seem dedicated to dismissing or disproving QAnon, but for an entirely different reason, because it was making them look bad by association. 
Some figures in conservative media were considering the possibility that Q was real, but it would be years until mainstream Republicans would start openly courting QAnon followers, winking and nodding to the movement and dog-whistling its beliefs in order to improve their ratings or vote counts. For the time being, most of them wanted nothing to do with it. One American News Network journalist, Jack Posebic, a right-wing pundit who we covered in the Pizzagate episode of the series that live-streamed his visit to Comet Ping Pong back in 2016, announced on Twitter that he had gotten an exclusive interview with the people originally behind the creation of Q, and that he was running a segment on OAN that would completely debunk the movement. We'll see that later. General Michael Flynn's son, Michael Flynn Jr., tweeted, Been mentioned alongside the QAnon hashtag before. I've never taken it seriously, and you shouldn't either. The pro-Trump but anti-Q researcher, The War Economy, put forth the claim that the people who helped break QAnon out of its 4chan prison and onto Reddit back in early 2018, Tracy Beans, Coleman Rogers, and Paul Ferber, along with a few others, were actually behind Q. This was supported by the previous evidence that seemed to show that Coleman Rogers had logged into Q's 8chan account more than once during live streams by accident. The Twitch streamer Unirock did his own investigation into this and, in an hour-long video posted to YouTube, supposedly proved that Q was originally started by the three people. His main evidence was an alleged confession from a former QAnon baker who was involved in the creation of Q but had a change of heart about what a grift it had become and came forward anonymously to whistleblow on Coleman Rogers and Paul Ferber. Some skeptics on both the left and the right, and even some Q followers themselves, believe the theory that Q might be White House Director of Social Media Dan Scavino. This is a weirdly universally popular theory with the entire spectrum because it seems realistic. Scavino writes many of Trump's tweets, and there is a whole subsection of QAnon dedicated to tracking the proximity of Q drops to Trump tweets and how often they coincide with each other. For followers, it would actually be proof that Q is a White House insider, though not as high a level as they think. And to skeptics, it gives a simple explanation that cuts away the complicated gristle of wondering why a random stranger would do all of this. Have you ever heard of Hobo Darkseid? Do you know this? No. So that there's a there was a thing in kind of in the early days of comics Twitter, like around like 2010, 2011, somewhere in there, maybe a little bit later, where there was a, a there was like a comics trash talk Twitter account called Hobo Darkseid. It was like that, like Hulk's the Angry Hulk film reviewer, where they're like erudite kind of academic film reviews, where every sentence starts with Hulk think blah 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 blah. This was the the high concept of the Twitter account is that it was that Darkseid had left Apocalypse and he was living in a refrigerator box in lower Manhattan. He was just the max. Yeah, basically he was just the max. And he was like searching, uh, he was like going to comic book stores and reading comics and like getting into comics gossip. And so this person would just, most of it was pretty, it was pretty clean. It wasn't the real shit. Like you and I have talked about the real things that have happened behind the scenes which are, like, not good. These were, like, the two layers up from that, where it was just kind of, like, petty gossip and, like, funny stuff. But the there was a conspiracy theory that at that time, multiple people thought various kind of comics celebrities were Hobo Darkseid. Some people thought it was Brian Wood. Some A lot of people thought it was Matt Fraction. And I've always kind of thought it was Fraction, but I, I don't really know. But it's that same thing where it's, like, the insider who's just close enough, but at that point, like, Matt Fraction wasn't, like, a huge name. He was just, like, the guy who was writing Punisher or whatever. It's, as soon as I read that, or as soon as you read that, I was like, oh, it's Hobo Darkseid. Yeah, totally. So Matt Fraction was the comics QAnon? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Former guest of the show? 
<laughs> Matt Fraction? I'm saying that in, in like 2014, there was a rumor that people thought he was running this kind of gossipy Twitter account. I don't, I've never asked him about it. I don't know for sure if it was him or not, but multiple people have at various points in time been fingered as like, I think that guy was fucking Hobo Darkseid, but who knows? R.I.P. Hobo Darkseid. Yeah, R.I.P. Hobo. Bring, bring Hobo Darkseid back. He hasn't been doing anything in forever. If you're listening to this, Matt, bring him back. <laughs> the last thing that Darks that Hobo Darkseid tweeted was I am Matt Fraction. It was on it was on 9-26-2017. And it was it's just fuck you, Jeremy Piven, fuck you, Jeremy Piven, fuck you, Jeremy Piven over and over again. Wait a minute. Wait a fucking minute, Dave. Okay. We threw out some wild theories in the last episode about who Q was. We've discovered that it was Stan Lee who was originally QAnon and it was taken over by somebody else whenever he died. But what date was that again? That that Hobo Darkseid first? It just said that when he just said, fuck you, Jeremy Piven over and over. That was on 9-26-2017. So on, on 9-26 of 2017, Hobo Darkseid posted for the final time. On 10 28, 2017, a little over a month later, Q posted for the first time. Matt Fraction is QAnon. I don't know that Fraction is Hobo Darkseid. That's just a rumor that was happening. That Matt I- Fraction got tired of just living within the narrow confines of the drama of the comics industry and had to break out further and tackle a much larger problem and he became q <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna scroll all the way to the beginning and see what the very first thing hobo Darkside tweeted was it's like hrc extradited <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah 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 however in response to this flurry of attempts to debunk and rationalize QAnon by people from every end of the political spectrum mike rothschild posed a question Did it matter who Q was? His answer was effectively that no, it didn't, which I think would end up ringing true throughout the movement's future and be more relevant to society than any of this other speculation. It's pretty clear that Q is not actually a secret government insider working with Trump to take down the deep state, but whether or not Q is a 4chan troll that got out of hand, an angry alt-right bad actor trying to amass clout and spread misinformation about the people he hates, a leftist prank, or a Russian psyop, as some conservative pundits were claiming, all that really mattered was that this movement was growing, and they were a force to be reckoned with, and they didn't actually care what the truth was or who was behind Q. The movement had mutated into a larger ideology that these people truly believed in, regardless of whether certain details of it or the person who started it all were actually real. On August 7th, a man named Forrest Clark was arrested in connection with starting a forest fire in Orange County, California, that destroyed around 20,000 acres of land before it was finally contained. The arrest came after a volunteer fire chief named Mike Milligan, who lived near Clark, got into a dispute with him about some items he had borrowed without permission. After their argument, Clark started rambling about how the world was against him, and later on texted Milligan, This place is going to burn, just like you planned. Two weeks later, the forest fire started. Clark was arrested after Milligan showed the text messages to authorities. Clark was a QAnon follower, having a long track record of posting QAnon content on his social media and ranting to neighbors and friends about the conspiracy theory. His text messages to Milligan, particularly the part where he said, quote, just like you planned, 
appeared to be alluding to the widely held belief by QAnon followers that the deep state cabal intentionally started forest fires in California as part of a conspiracy to trick people into believing that global warming is real. How assisting the deep state by setting the fire for them would be getting some kind of revenge on them is clearly the rationale of a deeply mentally unwell person. Clark is being held and awaiting trial for the crime to this day. He was recently denied a reduction of his $1 million bail. On August 10th, a man named Richard B. Russell stole a parked Q400 turboprop airplane from SeaTac Airport in Washington, got it off the ground, was chased around by F-15 fighters, flew around in circles several times, and then crashed into nearby Ketron Island, dying on impact. Q followers were quick to note that he had crashed close to the area where the supposed Whibdee Island missile had been launched in an attempt to shoot down Trump in Air Force One on his way to meet Kim Jong-un, and that it had also appeared like he was attempting to fly the plane in the shape of a Q before the crash. It also didn't hurt that the model of the plane he had stole had the letter Q in it. The bakers started baking, and they eventually concocted an elaborate theory. There was a submarine named the USS Richard B. Russell back in the 70s and 80s, named after a senator from Georgia at the time. The sub was decommissioned in 1994 on the same day that a B-52 flying out of the Washington Air Base crashed just 50 feet from a secret nuclear weapons storage facility. The Russell was then turned into scrap metal in October of 2001, shortly after 9-11. The ship's motto was, Save the best for last, which is something that Q famously said in drop number 714. Q also referenced getting possession of a submarine in drop number 952, saying, We have the sub. Hostage release, 1,000 pieces, Q. JFK famously said he would splinter the CIA into 1,000 pieces. So all of that so far is true. That all it actually happened. There was a submarine called the Richard B. Russell. It was decommissioned in 1994. That's the true stuff. So here's the theory. The submarine USS Richard B. Russell had not been scrapped. It was still in commission, but being used by the CIA. They had used this very submarine to shoot the Whibby missile that almost shot down Air Force One. The Georgia senator that the sub was named after had been on the Warren Commission, privy to the hidden truth that JFK had been assassinated by the CIA. And so, as an ironic joke, the CIA had attempted to kill Trump with a submarine named after a man who had known about the CIA killing JFK, and that the current Richard B. Russell, the one who stole the plane, had been trying to alert the public to the location of the Richard B. Russell submarine and the site of the Whibdee Island missile launch by drawing a big Q over it. Or perhaps he was actually a deep state cabal member attempting to send a message to Q? There was never quite a consensus. On October 24th, Senator John McCain announced he would no longer be seeking treatment for his brain cancer, creating speculation among Q followers that he was faking his illness and would eventually fake his own death in order to escape punishment for his crimes as one of the ringleaders of the deep state pedophile cabal. QAnon believers hated John McCain, largely because of how openly critical of Trump he was, and Q even referred to him as, quote, we don't say his name. The next day, he passed away. It was openly speculated amongst Q followers that he had actually been executed by the Trump administration for treason. On September 4th, OAN correspondent Jack Basavik dropped his expose that would supposedly debunk QAnon and reveal its original creators once and for all. QAnon is being debunked by one of the group's founders. One America's Jack Posobiec spoke with one of the former top members of the group and has this exclusive. For the past 10 months, an online movement has been picking up steam in America and has moved from online forums to Reddit to Twitter and to YouTube. 
It leapt from the little screen to the big screen when people began showing up at political rallies wearing shirts and waving signs that carried the name of the movement, QAnon, or simply Q. What is QAnon? Where did it come from? What is its purpose? And most importantly, who is Q? Well, Q first made its appearance on the web forum known as 4chan in October of 2017. What an awful news anchor. He reads this like a high school book report. And then he just, he goes through the basics of what QAnon is, like every other fucking thing is done. And then he talks to the supposed creator of QAnon. Twitter user named Dreamcatcher reached out to this reporter and told me about an op that he was planning with notorious pro-Trump troll Microchip that would plant bits of information on 4chan and act like it was coming from a high-level source inside the administration or the intelligence community. That later became the QAnon operation. I obtained chat logs from the two at that time in August of 2017, which back up their statements to us. That signing FBI Anon is good too, looks spooky, but we should do our own thing, one of them wrote. Let's use the Socratic method to question people and they're gonna flip on suggestions alone, said Microchip. Just sign it micro, Dreamcatcher replied. But the response was that they needed something more sinister and Q was born. Well, that's why I asked Microchip to record a video of himself opening up the Discord app on his iOS and scrolling through his screen to show us that the messages were not photoshopped or recreated in any way. Here is that video. So essentially the, these guys, Dreamcatcher and Microchip, they're positing that they created QAnon. As at first it was just kind of like this thing that they were just messing around. They wanted to see if they could get people talking about it and it got out of hand and eventually it was taken over. That's the general thing that they're putting forth. I want to talk about that a little later because there are other people who have come forward and claim that they are QAnon. There's a bunch of different thoughts and theories about how QAnon started and who controlled it at what times and certain times where it might have changed hands. And right now, the main idea is just that One American News ran this segment, but done by Jack Posobiec. And he framed this as I debunked it. This is definitive proof that QAnon is not real. And the, his research is a little flawed. There's not necessarily any kind of smoking gun proof that these guys are definitely Q. They're just saying that they were Q. And the proof that they provide is these time-stamped Discord chats. There's ways that, that that could have been faked or there's reasons why that's not definitive evidence. I do want to talk about that. I just wanted to set that up because I want to talk about that later, about the idea of who is Q and it'll, it'll come into play later. And ultimately what they end up saying is that the Q persona was taken over from them when they decided they didn't want to do it anymore. And it was taken over by Coleman Rogers, Pamphlet Anon, and Paul Ferber, Baruch the Scribe, the people who had originally worked with Tracy Beans to create the first QAnon subreddit that popularized the movement outside of 4chan, that they were the ones that became Q and that they were the ones running the movement while also profiting off of it as their influencer selves. On September 5th, Trump tweeted a single word. Treason? Tre treason? <laughs> I mean, he says it with a question mark. Treason? Yeah. 
It really is. It's like, you guys want some chips? Salt and vinegar chips? Got a, got a bag of them right here. This sparked massive rumors among the Q crowd that the storm was finally happening. Charcoal Filter posted, posting for prosperity. I hope I get a screenshot in the movie version. I don't even know what that means. The next user, Maga Voices, posted, in the future, our grandkids and great grandkids will ask us what we were doing the moment Trump tweeted treason. <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> It is a historic event. <laughs> Next user, Extraterrestrial Tony, says, September is the month we've been waiting for, boys. Get them to get Mo. Next comment says, we're getting really close to the big event. And the next poster says, it's treason then. Next poster, Stinky Dog Fart says, when Trump tweets a question, it's a statement, not a question. <laughs> so fucking dumb that sounds like it's supposed to be some kind of like deep thing but it's not at all it's just nonsense she's fucking so stupid when so fucking trump stupid. tweets a question he's actually saying the thing that he's so it's a rhetorical question that's what you're saying no when trump tweets a question it's a statement not a question no so it yes yeah, so a, 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 a rhetorical so question rhetorical it's a rhetorical question then is that a rhetorical no you see when he tweets a question that common thing that a lot of people do that everybody does ask rhetorical questions that all people do it's not indicative of some kind of like deeper thing it's just a thing that everybody does my god just the idea of grandma where were you on the day that trump tweeted treason <laughs> God, it's so good. Shortly afterward, Q posted another drop linking to the tweet. But instead of signing the drop Q as they usually did, the drop was instead signed Q+. Q+, was Donald Trump himself. He had personally posted this drop. Even though he has on several occasions admitted he has no idea how to even send an email. There are some Q drops that are signed Q+, which is in, indicates that they were personally posted by Trump because he's Q+. So fucking dumb. Oh, God. How do you feel about that one? We had some discussion about how the the name Antichrist was an awful name for the arch enemy of Christ. What, what do you feel about Trump being Q+. Mm, no just no this makes me tired man just this whole thing it's just it's exhausting dealing with this level just these waves of stupidity like it's just so exhausting because you just you want to have faith in your fellow man you want to have a sense of security when you walk out of your house that we all have a social contract and we've all agreed not to indiscriminately murder one another and we've all agreed that we share a common reality and we see the world even if we have differing of opinions on what we should do about it that facts are facts and the world outside is when it's daytime it's daytime and it's when it's nighttime it's nighttime and that you shouldn't probably have a fucking reddit username that's stinky dog fart because that's really not cool and this whole thing is depressing and no i don't like q plus no that sucks yeah and you can you can debunk misinformation all day for as long as you want. But at the end of the day, you just realize that it's none of it matters because if you believe any of this, if you see a tweet of somebody saying treason and you're like, the storm is coming. Oh my God. They added a plus sign next to the name on this anime website. This is Trump sending us a personal, like you can't, you, there's no debunking. There's, there's nothing you could say that would put you in the same plane of reasoning and reality as that person. Yeah, I'm just not a fan. 
No such storm ever came. On September 12th, Reddit banned the R Great Awakening subreddit and all of its backup channels, stating that it violated rules against inciting violence, harassment, and the dissemination of personal information. This was the first high-profile deep platforming on social media for QAnon since Reddit banned the RCBTS stream subreddit earlier that year. On September 20th, a man named William Douglas was arrested in Oregon by the FBI for weeks of cyber-stalking and death threats towards YouTube employees. He was an open QAnon follower, frequently posting videos ranting about the theory. However, he felt like his YouTube channel had recently been shadow-banned, or that the channel's reach to his subscribers had been secretly throttled by the YouTube algorithm and he became convinced that it was part of some deep state government conspiracy to silence him. It was because of this that he started relentlessly harassing YouTube employees, including Susan Wojcicki, the company's CEO, threatening that he was going to come to their office and shoot up the place. He tweeted at the employees with the messages such as, I would kill the 100 YouTube employees. You want bigger mass casualty, AKA shooting? Let's see what I can do. And return my channel, you lowlife shoals before someone else comes and shoots more of your employees. He was found guilty of the crime and sentenced to federal prison in late 2020. On October 9th, U.S. Marshals did a press release announcing the success of a recent operation called My Safe Kid, conducted in the Detroit area. In the release, they reported having recovered 123 missing children in one single day in late September. QAnon obviously latched onto this as an example of one of the nation's underground child trafficking rings being busted up by Trump and Q. And of course, Q was happy to take credit for it on behalf of themselves and President Trump. The story was passed around on platforms like 8chan, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube as proof that the Q theories about pedophile cabals was true, and that Trump was actually starting to do something about it. The Q followers also claimed that the mainstream media wasn't reporting on the story, and it was actively trying to cover it up. However, this is precisely the problem in our modern day of news and information being disseminated out by social media through clickable thumbnails that lead to articles. People only read the headlines. In reality, Operation My Safe Kid wasn't the successful recovery of 123 missing children from one location, such as an underground trafficking dungeon. It was 123 total children spread over several recoveries that were all carried out on the same day. The operation had been a coordinated effort by U.S. Marshals cooperating with local Detroit authorities to knock out a string of missing persons cases throughout the entire city. One kid here, one kid there. All mostly isolated cases. Also, we're going to go much further into this in the next episode, but QAnon followers vastly misunderstand missing children and child trafficking statistics. They are constantly sharing around numbers about how many children go missing in our country each year and how many are trafficked, completely leaving out the context that a vast majority of children reported missing in our country are either A, kids who have run away from home, especially foster homes they've been temporarily placed in, or B, kids who have been abducted by one of their own parents in the middle of messy custody battles. A much smaller percentage of the cases are children that have actually been abducted by strangers or are genuinely missing. This is relatively rare. Also, child trafficking numbers include underage kids, largely homeless, who have ever in their lives participated in sex work even once. So for instance, a 16-year-old girl who is living on the street starts participating in sex work in order to generate some kind of income, and then is caught in the act by police will be counted in the statistics on child trafficking. Obviously, these cases are also incredibly dark, upsetting, and certainly a crime that has been committed on the part of the adult engaging in sex with a minor but it's just simply not the same as the inflated, fantastical idea QAnon followers have of these numbers representing children being sold into trafficking rings. Genuine human and child trafficking of course exists, but number one, 
Statistically, a child is more likely to be sold into human trafficking by their own parents, other family members, or family friends than they are by total strangers. And number two, the numbers just aren't as astronomically high as QAnon imagines. And that's essentially what happened here. Many of the 123 missing children recovered on the day were simply kids who had run away from home and were sleeping on the street or staying at a friend's house. Some of the children had even been recovered simply by going to their school and discovering them in class. All the children were interviewed and questioned about trafficking or abuse, and only three of them showed signs of having engaged in any kind of sex work. Once again, sad and disgusting, but not the fantasy of Trump and his team busting up a massive trafficking ring. Trump didn't even have anything to do with it. As for the claims of mainstream media burying the story, there's really no debunking that needs to be done there. It's just simply not true. People just say things aren't being reported on by the media even when they just are. The story wasn't covered nationally by big orgs like CNN or Fox News because, as stated before, it was a local law enforcement operation that was fairly low stakes. But it was well covered by local affiliate stations. How the hell else would they have heard about it? In fact, in the biggest show of cognitive dissonance that I can even fathom, every single time I've ever seen somebody in a Facebook group posting about a child trafficking story that, quote, isn't being talked about by mainstream media, their claim is without fail 100% of the time accompanied by a link to an article from a mainstream news organization about the story. They will post a URL to the story being reported on by a local NBC affiliate along with a text caption saying, why is nobody talking about this? Without fail. I really want to talk more about child trafficking statistics and how much or little QAnon has actually helped the problem of trafficking in the country, but that's for later. On October 17th, Joe M released another epic, polished viral video called Q We Are The Plan. We're not going to watch it because it's largely the exact same shit as the first video. If anything, it feels like an Evil Dead 2 style requel to repackage the same exact stuff for a new wave of Q curious normies. However, what's fascinating about the video is that you can witness a subtle shift in the framing of the information that is very telling. Something has clearly changed in Joe M since he initially released the plan to save the world. A change that is emblematic, I think, of the entire Q movement at this point. As I said before, Joe M's first video, the plan to save the world, almost feels like far left propaganda. His general narrative about government corruption and the exploitation of the worker isn't far off from the exact types of things that progressives rail against on a daily basis. It's only really the slight twist at the end where, instead of capitalism being at fault for the country's woes, it's a satanic cult that differentiates the two ideologies. We Are the Plan frames everything in a much more fascist way. It leans more heavily into talking about dangerous gangs of illegals crossing the border into the country. It presses more on the fear center of the brain than the previous video. Plan to Save the World is almost an uplifting celebration of how the world was being saved while we all could just sit back and watch. It preached a message of positivity that the mainstream establishment was trying to divide us with hate, but that we should transcend these things and come together. It was all completely made up horseshit with absolutely no factual information, but it was still uplifting positive horseshit with a message of hope. We Are The Plan seems like it's almost tinged with a jadedness or a pessimism. It has a more claustrophobic feeling of being backed into a corner and thinking enough is enough. It seems to accurately represent what many Q followers were feeling after an entire year of, quote, trusting the plan and repeatedly not seeing the results that were promised. When Joe M dropped the plan to save the world back in June, QAnon movement was still new. Everyone was really excited about this huge mass arrest event that was going to happen any day now. Following Q was one great big dopamine rush full of optimism for a brighter future. In October, Following QAnon was an increasingly slippery slope of rationalizing repeated false predictions and lack of movement on anything changing for the better. You can feel that in We Are The Plan, up in the corners of it. 
even if the main glut of the video was still attempting to carry that same hopeful tone. Another big change in the framing of the narrative in We Are The Plan is expressed directly in the title. In the early stages of Q, the movement was all about grabbing the popcorn and waiting for the movie to start. Plan to Save the World was a brochure for a vacation. It was a promise of getting to kick back and watch all of the exciting new things occur. But several months later, it was clear to everyone, even if they didn't want to consciously admit it, that these direct, literal things Q kept promising probably weren't actually going to happen. In the face of that harsh truth, Joe M basically decided to just skip over acknowledging that the predictions didn't come true, the mass arrest didn't occur, and nothing seemed to have outwardly changed at the grand scale that had been promised, and instead just said that it had all happened. We had won. The storm had happened. It just happened off screen or something. Here's the end of We Are The Plan and Joe's new actually all predictions did happen and we're all safe now and Q was right ending. But after all this, it appears now that not only are we winning, but we have won. The trajectory of this great storm is now radiantly clear. Now we look forward to a new future thanks to the brave patriots who risked everything to save our world. This time for good. There is not a person alive who has experienced what a world without this darkness could be like. A world of free energy that was kept from us to force our dependency on their fossil fuel monopolies. Abolishment of income tax that was illegally imposed to pay back interest on loans taken from the cabal banking system. Released cures for our most deadly diseases. Unleashed space technology. The craziest thing about this whole movement is that in the beginning, Q made these specific promises of concrete results. Like, for whatever reason, they just weren't in the mode where they thought this thing was going to have this longevity. And I'm sure they didn't realize it was going to have this longevity. And or they just weren't in they weren't trying to turn it into a movement. But for whatever reason, they were they made these specific concrete promises of these literal things are going to happen. And that's what the movement was built around. That's what got everybody excited. That's what made the movement popular was this isn't like, oh, some vague things happening in the background. This was in the coming months. There's going to be a global event where thousands of people are going to be arrested in public and we're all going to see it happen. And certain people are going to be angry about it. There's going to be mass riots. We're mobilizing the National Guard and all the military to quash these riots and you're just going to be able to watch all this happen. There was no ambiguity about it whatsoever. There's no way you could rationalize it. They were saying these direct things were going to happen that were like huge and really melodramatic. And then none of that stuff happened at all. But because the promises were so large and concrete and direct, there was just simply no way to backpedal or rationalize it at all. There was the, the gap between what was promised and what happened was so wide that there's just nothing you could do to rationalize it. And so basically what they did was they just didn't. And they just instead said it happened. It, it happened. We're good. It's funny because you would think that tactic would have been employed by the religious right at some point. Like Armageddon fucking... The rapture, all of those kind of Judeo-Christian ideas that they've been peddling for 2,000 years. Like, you'd think that they would have tried that. Yeah, the rapture happened. Everybody on the earth is garbage. None of us got invited. There was one dude that went. And he's just up there in heaven with Jesus, like a real weird party where nobody else showed up. And it somehow turns into this weird kind of like date on accident. 
and then you're just awkwardly making small talk with this person that you did not realize you were ever going to have to have one-on-one time with and you don't have a buffer and you just don't know what to talk about with them and all of us are down here just like we're in we've been living in the fucking end times tribulation for the last a hundred years you'd think that'd be a really good way of converting people that were on the edge shoring up mass support getting people to give you a shitload of money and then at the end of that you can just pull a well yeah but now the cycle's gonna repeat you didn't get fucking to have a last time but we're gonna fucking do it again baby we're getting a do-over we're getting a reboot we're gonna first class this shit we're gonna first class it yeah we're getting a, we're getting a first class last time you were hardcore ben affleck daredevil energy this time you can be netflix daredevil energy yeah it's up to you I choose Netflix. We got the fucking red brown Captain America. Now let's go full Chris Evans. Over the next couple of years, this is overwhelmingly the narrative direction that the Q followers would head in. They wouldn't acknowledge that Q's predictions hadn't come true, that the storm hadn't come, and there hadn't been the direct tangible changes in the country they thought were going to happen any day now. Instead, they would just fast forward to acting like it had all happened and that Q's true mission was to inform people about the true nature of the world. The plan wasn't some massive military operation to take down a global pedophile cabal out in the open where everybody would see it happen. We were the plan. The plan was equipping us with the knowledge and tools to continue fighting the fight on our own. And just trust me on this. If Trump and Q hadn't done what they had done over the past year, things would be a lot worse right now, which is somehow more dangerous than the previous ideas held by QAnon followers because you can't prove a negative. You know, if it, Dave, if, if I sat here and I went, Pew! and then I said, if I hadn't done that just now, your head would have exploded. Honestly, I'd believe you. I'd believe you. You go all in on it? Yeah, yeah. The amount of times you've made strange noises like that and I've never really called you on it. I should have asked then. I'm saving you. You're saving my life every time. Yeah, I, I believe it. I believe it. I'm fighting the battle behind the scenes for your very existence on a daily basis. I mean, they basis. don't call you Papa Pricey for nothing. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that you can, there's there's nothing that you could ever say to prove that's not true. But why would I? Because it is true. Yeah, but uh, yeah, in this case, it is true. But considering that it is an outlandish claim that despite the fact that it is absolutely true, that no reasonable person would assume is the truth, it is then on me, it is my responsibility to prove that it is true. If a claim is so outlandish and outside of the confines of logical thought and something that a rational person would believe by default, it is not the responsibility of the person to prove that it's not true. It's the pro- it's the responsibility of the person that is saying it to prove that it is true. That's the burden of proof. And that's the same thing here with QAnon. You, you, there's nothing you could do to say, to prove that this didn't fix the world or whatever, or make it, or you can't prove that the world would have not been worse had Trump and Q been doing something in the background. It's on them to prove that is true, but the burden of proof means nothing to QAnon followers. So it's like this collective gaslight of reason and logic. The one year anniversary of Q came and went with no fanfare. Q didn't even post a drop on that day as they went dark for the entire month of October starting on the 9th. However, on November 1st, Q came back with a drop that we'll call the beginning of the end of phase one of the QAnon cinematic universe. Do not let them divide you. Together, you are strong. Together, you win. Your vote matters. The drop was referring to the upcoming 2018 midterm elections on November 7th, an election cycle that was notable for being the first time in many years that the entire House, a third of the Senate, and a bunch of local seats were all up for grabs by either party. 
It was being looked at as a big paradigm shift where the Democrats or the Republicans could make massive land grabs and secure a lot of power for a long time. In fact, one of Q's main tenets was promising that there would be a, quote, red wave in the midterms, that all of those open seats would be overwhelmingly won by Republicans, and that the securing of majority power by conservatives would inevitably trigger, you guessed it, the storm. The drop was also interesting for two reasons. One, it was the first of many drops in the beginning of November themed exclusively around urging Q followers to go out and vote. And two, eschewing the usual ominous clip tone and leading but vague questions of a typical Q drop, it reads like some corporate brand's obligatory generic get-out-the-vote tweet. If Target posted this exact message, nobody would bat an eye. This leads into a very interesting theory we'll address in a bit. Throughout the next several days, Q posted several drops with similar, upbeat, tonally uncharacteristic messages about the importance of voting in the midterms. What was interesting and unexpected, though, probably even for Q themselves, was that they actually got a little bit of pushback within 8chan for their voting messaging. Specifically, people questioning whether a high-level government official sending out messages to the public about voting was violating the Hatch Act, a law that prohibits government officials from attempting to influence the outcome of an election. In response, Q actually addressed the question, posting an image of the actual rules of the Hatch Act. And so these are the rules of the Hatch Act from the, some official government website, and they've circled some of the key rules they're trying to point out here. All of this is bullshit, though. Like, really? This is where you're going to draw the line? Is somebody violating the Hatch Act? You're talking about fucking Democrat vampires, and this is just... But, but you're violating the Hatch Act. Yeah, like, come on, guys. Yeah, so the rules they vote, they circle here. A government official may register and vote as they choose, may assist in voter registration drives, may attend political fundraising functions, may attend political rallies and meetings, may express opinions about the candidates and issues. If the expression is political activity, however, i.e. actively directed at the success of or failure of a political party, candidate for partisan political office, or partisan political group, then the expression is not permitted while the employee is on duty in any federal room or building while wearing a uniform or official insignia or using any federally owned or leased vehicle. Uh, and also one of the things that they did not circle is may not use any may not use any email account or social media to distribute, send or forward content that advocates for or against a partisan political party. And they did not circle, may not post a comment to a blog or social media site that advocates for or for or against partisan political for or against a partisan political party candidate for partisan political office or a partisan political group. They didn't circle those. A section of the rules has been highlighted showing that government officials are allowed to express opinions about candidates and issues as long as it's not directed at the success or failure of a political party or a specific candidate implying that Q is not violating the law because their drops are simply saying to go out and vote without specifying who to vote for. And that might be true if not for the added context that the urges to vote are coming from a person who has specifically promised a red wave, or in other words, overwhelming victory for Republicans. And their entire existence within the context of their posting activities is to get people to believe that the Democratic candidates are all pedophiles and the Republican candidates are all heroes. So I feel like technically, if this was really being assessed by the actual government, I'm not sure Q would be in the clear. However, Q is in the clear and isn't violating any kind of law because they are not a high-ranking government official. After the clarification, though, Q continued on with their Rock the Vote campaign, ROQ, 
Keep your eye on the ball, midterms, and memes. Your country needs you. Your vote matters. We the people. The time is now. Patriots, fight! We will protect the vote. All hands on deck. Together we are strong. Together we win! Vote, vote. Will you answer the call? Your country needs you. The left has no chance. Which is, that's directly insinuating a political party winning. Eyes on, patriots. History books. Vote and meme. Vote and meme. We are counting on you. We must rise again. We must unite again. We must fight again. For God and country, please answer the call and vote. God bless America. WWG1 WGA. Be proud, patriots. Today, like in 2016, you are in one united voice, rising up to defend this great nation. Today, like in 2016, you are in one united voice, protecting the freedoms in which so many have died to provide. Today, like in 2016, you are in one united voice, making America great again. I just came. History is being made. You are the saviors of mankind. Nothing will stop what is coming. Nothing. And then finally, on November 6th, the day before the election. We are united. The world is changing. Can you feel it? This almost sounds like Prince lyrics. (laughs) No, you know what it is? It's We Are the World. We are united. The world is changing. Can you feel it? These are all just lyrics from We Are the World. Oh my God, Huey Lewis is Q? (laughs) Not only had the drops devolved into outright propaganda that would make commercials playing in the background of a scene in Robocop blush, but also something was different about Q in general. Their tones seemed to have shifted. When they weren't yelling generic, jingoistic platitudes, they were no longer speaking in the usual conspiratorial, vague, coded language they usually were. They were being more candid and informal. In response to someone pointing out that it appeared as if Trump had mimed the shape of a Q at a recent Trump rally, Q said this. POTUS really made that one obvious, didn't he? It was the end that sealed it. In another drop, Q appeared to be giving their followers a glimpse into a private conversation between them and Trump. Did they get the shot? I pointed directly. Did they get the shot? I directly pointed at it three times. I turned and double pointed just to be clear. Did they pick up the boom, boom, boom? Something is happening? Yes, Mr. President. Anons are actively tracking. Message received. Good. That's good. Q's tone was almost sentimental. They were also being more specific and referencing concrete predictions again like they had in the early days before the repeated false positives forced them to change tack and start making everything coded and vague. In one drop, responding to a Q follower mentioning a story they'd read that John Podesta had secretly committed suicide to escape prosecution in the coming storm, Q responded with, Fake news, but both brothers do have a pending sealed indictment. It almost seemed as if a whole other person was now making the drops. Or perhaps it was the same person, but they had let the mask slip slightly, no longer as focused on maintaining the persona they had built for Q because they were nearing the end of something. Despite Q's optimism, however, polls were not looking good for the Republicans, and the people were already starting to cook up new conspiracy theories to rationalize a potential loss. One of them, which we would become very familiar with over the coming years, was that there would be wide-scale voter fraud committed by Democrats that would potentially steal the election for them. Another was that Republicans were being scared away from voting locations through intimidation by Antifa thugs en masse all throughout the country. A third, simpler theory was that if Republicans lost, it was all part of the plan. Q validated these three theories in a few drops in between their upbeat cries for voter turnout. And then, on November 7th, the red wave did not come. Republicans narrowly kept control of the Senate. Democrats took the House, and it was a mixed bag in terms of who nabbed the local seats. It wasn't a blue wave by any means. But all things being said, the entire ordeal seemed to have been a slight win for the Democrats by a razor-thin margin. 
After the results of the election, Q came back on November 7th, like Joe M, trying to gloss over the failed promise of a red wave and pretend like they had accomplished what they wanted all along. We got what we needed. Thank you, patriots. Senate means everything. Think judges, SC, and cabinet. D-class overrides all potential House blockades. POTUS has ultimate authority, shifted to Senate Judiciary oversight from House to now occur stronger position and held in reverse for this scenario. Lower chamber, House, used as two-year starter. Upper chamber, Senate, will be used for two-year closer. We are at war. Think logically. Why was winning the House majority the primary goal for them? To this point, the chamber is currently directing the DOJ FBI investigations. To this point, what chamber do you feel most threatened by? The Senate was always the primary objective, moves and counter moves. We defined history by picking up Senate seats. Patriots delivered. Disinfo is necessary. Enemy at the front door. The disinfo was Q promising that there was going to be a red wave, which did not happen. It was really all about getting the Senate back. They didn't actually need any of the other stuff. So they lied about it strategically. Also on November 7th, after months of tensions and disagreements and facing the strong likelihood of being fired by Trump, Attorney General Jeff Sessions resigned from the White House. This served as a major embarrassment for Q, who had frequently referenced Sessions as a true patriot working closely with Trump to drain the swamp and established him as a hero within the Quanon. In response, Q posted a laugh out loud piece of plot hole filler that might go down in history as one of the funniest things that anybody has ever spoken and claimed was true and was believed by other people. Thank you for your service to our country, Mr. Jeff Sessions. Your sacrifices will never be forgotten. Q+. Talk about word economy. Without having to actually explain anything, in two sentences and a signature, Q was able to establish that, for whatever mysterious reason, Sessions resigning was part of the plan and that the tensions between him and Trump and Trump's seeming dislike for him were all kayfabe to some greater ends. When I read this drop, I laughed out loud. It's just so funny to me. You can just see the person on the other end just being like, oh, shit, like that plot line did not work out. We ch- we backed the wrong horse. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh, I got it. It's so funny to me. On December 2nd, during a Patriot Soapbox live stream discussing the death of George H.W. Bush, someone accidentally called Coleman Rogers Q. I wish I knew who or what the specific context of this was, but all copies of the video have been scrubbed from the internet. There are only a few posts on Reddit's making reference to it. The death of Bush Sr. also sparked conspiracy theories that he had actually been executed by Trump and Q for his crimes of treason. Because there's no possible way a 94-year-old man confined to a wheelchair who had gone completely senile could have died of old age. No. There's so many there's so many of these people. Like, okay, fine. Whenever some young spry person dies, like, fine. The come up with a conspiracy theory about how they were ex- executed or whatever, or assassinated. But there are like several like geriatric at the ends of their lives, old men who are part of a conspiracy theory that they were assassinated when they died. QAnon believers literally don't think that anybody has ever died of natural causes and that there's never been a real actual catastrophe that's ever happened. Understandable. Also, during Bush Sr.'s nationally televised funeral, several of the high-profile members of the audience, including Hillary Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, all appeared to receive some kind of envelope and can be seen on camera opening it up, looking at the contents, and adopting contemplated looks on their faces. QAnon followers theorized that they had all received warnings of the impending storm directly from Trump himself, and they weren't just programs for the funeral. 
On December 3rd, in a disturbing turn of events, a Florida State SWAT officer was demoted for wearing a Q patch on his uniform during a photo op with Vice President Mike Pence. On December 11th, Google CEO Sundar Pichai was questioned for three and a half hours by the House Judiciary Committee about tech privacy. There were many things discussed during the hearing, but at one point, Rep. Jamie Raskin questioned Pachai about the role that Google-owned platform YouTube's algorithm had in spreading conspiracy theories and false claims, and what Google planned to do about it. In this question, he specifically asked Pachai what they planned to do about spreading of things like, quote, frazzle drip. Now, Pachai's actual responses don't matter because it was just a bunch of meandering tech-speak nonsense meant to appear as if he was answering the question while ultimately avoiding answering the questions. But the actual interesting part is the fact that Frazzle Drip would actually be mentioned in a house hearing. Frazzle Drip is a conspiracy theory within the QAnon mythology that was initially championed by Q influencer Liz Crokin in the early days of the movement. It references a video file that was uncovered on Anthony Weiner's laptop hidden in a series of folders. The video file, titled Frazzle Drip, was discovered by the detectives that were inspecting the laptop, and upon viewing it, they discovered it was footage of Hillary Clinton and Huma Abaddon torturing, mutilating, abusing, and consuming a child. That exists. But guess what? It's not fake, okay? So on Anthony Weiner's computer, there was a file that was titled Life Insurance. And in this file, there are videos, allegedly uh, sex videos, including a sex video of Hillary Clinton, allegedly with Uma Abedin, and an underage girl, yes, believe it or not, women can be pedophiles too. And there's also so many videos implicating so many powerful politicians involved in pedophilia. And the videos were so graphic and horrific that multiple sources said that when NYPD got this laptop and reviewed these files, it was so horrific that it made grown men cry. Okay, grown men cry. So NYPD has these files. So does the FBI. And from what I'm hearing, my sources are saying that WikiLeaks have has the files as well. These files, I believe, will be released. It's only a matter of time. NYPD officers have threatened to release them on their own. If the FBI doesn't do the right thing, if the good people in the Justice Department do the right thing, and uh, Julian Assange has been taunting Hillary Clinton very actively on Twitter, and he released a key um, that most likely is a key to another data dump, which could possibly include this life insurance file that was on Anthony Weiner's laptop that would include all the videos of this child sex trafficking, uh, the Hillary Clinton sex tape, the, the child sex abuse, you name it. And if and when this happens, let me tell you, no one will be able to deny that Pizzagate isn't real. Nobody will be able to deny that the likes of the Clintons and John Podesta and many, many politicians and many members of Congress are involved in the child rape and torture of, I should say, the satanic rape and torture of kids because all of the pedophilia actually revolves around their beliefs in the occult and their worship of Lucifer, Satan, Moloch, whatever the hell you want to call their... Liz Crokin looks like a rat king of Karens. 
Liz Crokin is not my favorite human. She is a literal SNL character in real life. She's the 2021 version of that Satan character that Dana Carvey used to play. Even down to her name, like Liz Crokin is an S is a 90s SNL character name. Yeah. On December 12th, somebody asked Q if the Earth was flat during a Q&A session. Q's response was simply no. There's no relevance of that to the story, but uh, fuck you, Mark Sargent. I hope Mark Sargent has listened to all of these episodes the just hours and hours of us talking about all of these conspiracy theories and he was like getting de-radicalized by it (laughs) and then i said that and it just pulls him back in just when i thought i was out it pulls me back in yeah i love the idea that we would be on the verge of saving mark Sargent's life and that you would fuck it up at the last minute by just being petty and being like fuck you mark Sargent," and then he'd like full-on board shorts no mask at a conspiracy theory bigfoot convention i just do the exact thing i've been like preaching this whole thing against doing and i just ruin any any attempt at bringing him from the brink by just like mocking him but also fuck you mark Sargent. and on december 14th as the first ever instance of QAnon actually seeping into mainstream politics a california city councilwoman pam patterson who had been outed a month prior as a QAnon believer and who had lost her bid for re-election, gave a farewell speech to her constituents before stepping down from her position. During the speech, she said this. And now to quote Q number 2436. For far too long we have been silent and allowed our bands of strength that we once formed to defend freedom and liberty to deteriorate. We became divided. We became weak. We elected traitors to govern us. We allowed evil to prey on us. Those who claimed to represent us gave us false hope, made false promises. The evil and corruption only grew. We must rise again. We must unite again. We must fight again for God and country. God bless America. Where we go one, we go all. Q. Her preservation. It was an honor to serve you. God bless America. God bless Q. And God bless San Juan Capistrano. Thank you. Hold on, Pam, you're not done yet. I love that bit at the end. Hold on, Pam, you're not done yet. Hold your horses, Pam. You're not done. You're not done. Hold on. Hold your horses, Pam. It's so it's so bizarre to hear in the context of this just mundane like council meeting with this completely uncharismatic woman like awkwardly reading off a paper and just sounding just really awkward and stilted in this room with just a bunch of people crowded into these seats and all these kids sitting there of her just like low key in a way that nobody understands just like praying to a fake conspiracy theory god. And now to worship my false idol, he has a bull head and a minotaur body. His name is Qatar, and he's coming to save the children. They haven't found the save the children phrase yet. That's later. And while this was an example of a Q follower leaving office, and everybody in the room clearly had no idea what she was even talking about, It was a terrifying foreshadowing of the brave new world we are now entering into. And this right here in this moment is another big shift in the QAnon movement. And this is a theory that I want to talk about real quick, just wrapping up 2018, moving into 2019. 
and just really this big moment in the history of the movement where there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of theories about it, about what happened during this transitionary phase. And it's just a really big shift and change in what QAnon became. And I I just so just I want to go through my sort of theory about what happened here. And I save it to the end of the act because I didn't want to inject my opinion into the actual main discussion. But essentially, so so basically what happens is this QAnon movement starts in the end of 2017 in October and which I actually just occurred to me. As I was working on writing this episode, it occurred to me that the QAnon started a few days from Halloween in October and we're doing QAnon month in October. And uh, that was not on purpose. I did not think about that. That was a complete coincidence. I just thought it would be funny to do like I thought it'd be funny to do. Oh, it's spooky because it's scary and terrifying and indicative of how our society is going to hell. Halloween. But I didn't realize that it's actually very thematically relevant. But so it starts in, in late 2017. And it has these specific predictions of these things that are going to happen, which obviously galvanized a lot of people around the movement and got them to buy into it majorly because it was tapping into a lot of the frustrations and things that people were these people were thinking about and giving them explanations for things that they were angry about and really just galvanized a large core group of people around it. And then the next phase of it was like, okay, now that we've got this core group of people that are all in on these specific promises we're giving. It's not an ideology. It is specific things that are going to happen. And we've got these people who have got her are like radicalized based on these specific things. Now let's turn it into an ideology. Now let's turn it into a set of beliefs. Let's sand away the edges. Let's turn this into more of a kind of vague, generic thing so that we can start bringing in a bigger crew of people. We've got our core loyalists who can go out and do outreach and recruitment, but we've got to make it more of a a belief system rather than built on specific promises and predictions. We got to turn it into a belief system and we got to make it vague to get these larger swaths of people. And then that happens and it works and it grows even more. And then the third sort of phase of it was towards the end of 2018, the midterm elections are coming up and then suddenly there's a shift again. And it's not, oh, there's these specific predictions and it's not, oh, here's this vague ideology. Then it becomes go vote. It becomes this like literal Sean P. Diddy Combs wearing a voter die shirt at the VMAs. It's just somebody literally just being like, all right, guys, let's go out there. Let's make it. Let's change the world. Let's vote. It's such a dramatic shift from what the what Q had been saying before in like tonally that I think a lot of people and you wouldn't be unreasonable for thinking that it seems like a different person was running, was posting as Q at that time because it just seems like a whole different person and a whole different message. It wasn't about cabals and shit. It was just go vote. It was like a generic vote outreach campaign. And then that didn't happen. And the the red wave didn't come. And what that that kind of that just didn't happen. It didn't come about. And so that's where it gets left off in the end of 2018 going into 2019. And as we're going to discover, as we go into 2019, there's another shift and another change. And the tone of what of what Q is doing changes again. And as we're going to learn in the coming rest of the show, and as a lot of you might already know, because this is one of the most popular publicized aspects of QAnon. But later on, people start to theorize about who Q might be. 
And one of the biggest theories pushed forth was that at some point there was a changing of hands from whoever Q was originally. And it was passed over to Jim Watkins, who ends up becoming the owner of 8chan. And the theory is that there was somebody who created Q and was doing Q. And then at some point they gave it to Jim Watkins and he and his son, or maybe just himself by himself, or maybe him and a team started running Q as this like weird publicity grift to amass clout and build an audience for their website 8chan. We'll get into a lot of the reasons for that later, but that's kind of the general belief. So the question is like, why and when did this shift happen? Why did it happen? Why did they give it over to Jim Watkins? And who was it that did this originally? And so you have these people that Jack Posobiec, Posobiec put forth, Dreamcatcher and Microchip. And their general version of the story is that we started Q as a joke, as an experiment at the beginning. It got out of hand. We were like, fuck this. We gave it away to some of the other people that were involved, which were the pamphlet and on and Baruch the scribe people, Coleman Rogers, the founder of Patriot Soapbox and this South African guy, Baruch the scribe, Paul Ferber. And they took it over and they turned it into a grift. They turned it into a money making operation to build audiences for themselves as influencers. And then at some point they handed it off to Jim Watkins for what ends. Not sure. And then there's a couple of other people that, aside from Dreamcatcher and Microchip, that have said a similar story. They've come forward and said that they were Q, and they basically give some version of the same story. They started it in the beginning. It was an experiment. It wasn't meant to be serious. There's one guy who claimed that he started it because the, the Charlottesville white supremacy marches happened, and somebody was somebody a counter protester was killed by a white supremacist by who rammed them with their car. And it was this big, bad mess, and it was looking really bad for conservatives and the alt-right. And this person wanted to change the conversation, and they wanted to create something that would distract people from the Charlottesville stuff and disassociate conservatives and the alt-right from white supremacy because they thought that that was a dangerous path to go down. They didn't want to be associated with white supremacy. They thought it was important to try to do something to change that conversation. So they created Q around that time as a distraction from that, specifically a way of getting people's minds off of the Charlottesville thing and onto some new weird thing so that white supremacy would not forever be inexorably associated with the alt-right in their mind. And who knows if that person's telling the truth? There's no proof. And there's a couple other people who have also come forward and given like generally the same vague story. It's always, we started this as a experiment, a joke. It got big. We were just doing it to see what we could do. And then we decided we didn't want to do it anymore. And so we gave it over to Pamphlet Anon and Baruch the Scribe. And then they eventually gave it over to Jim Watkins. My opinion and theory about this whole thing, and this isn't totally unique. I felt like my take on it is kind of unique. Nobody has this exact theory on it, but it's it's people have shades of the same theory. And I've gotten some of the ideas from other people. So I'm not trying to say that this is like some crazy hot take or totally original, but it's it's got the Papa Pricey thumbprint on it. Meaning that it's just like in a silly voice. It's just, you're just like, I just think that it's the Watkinses. <laughs> the, the QAnon clown or the well, the continuity clown. The continuity clown. Papa yeah, Pricey, yeah, yeah. the continuity clown. QAnon clown is his 
evil twin. So my opinion is that whether it was the microchip person or, or the, and the dream catcher person or whether it was this other person who I'm blanking on the name of right now, but it doesn't even matter or whoever it was. I think that somebody did start QAnon as the same as any of these other quote unquote high level insider Epfarf posters on 4chan. They just did it as a fun thing. They just did it like, I'm going to start this thing. I'm going to start pretending like I'm a high-level insider. And I'm going to try to see how I can get a rise out of people. And so they and a couple other people just started doing this. And I think that Pamphlet and On and Brute the Scribe were part of it. And they all banded together and started doing this thing. At first, it was maybe just one or two people starting it. And then they slowly, after a couple of weeks, they started getting people involved. And eventually they got Baruch the Scribe and Pamphlet Anon involved. And there was like five, 10, 12 people who were in on this thing, who were posting and just having fun creating this story and putting things together. I think some of the people, whether it's Microchip or whether it's this other guy or whoever it was, I think there was some people who early on in it were like, oh, this is getting weird. People are starting to buy into this in a way that I did not expect. I'm out. I'm out. I'm cashing out. And it was left solely in the hands of the people who saw it as an opportunity to turn it into something bigger, which were Coleman Rogers and Paul Ferber. And so they became the sole Q people and they got Tracy Beans involved. I don't think they got her involved to the point where they told her they were Q. I think they just got her involved to help them with their sort of like marketing on the outside of 4chan because they weren't good at that. But they were Q. But here's the part of it that's kind of unique to me. My theory is that Pamphlet Anon and Baruch the Scribe or whoever was doing Q for the first year, I think it was likely them, but it could have been somebody else. I think that their entire goal for QAnon was that they wanted to see if they could create a movement event that could influence the outcome of the midterm election. I think that was the goal the entire time. I think the whole purpose of QAnon was to build an audience for themselves and gain influencer clout and build it all to an election influencing crescendo. Are you and are you saying that specifically for the 2018 midterms or it just happened to be that's what the next midterm was? It was the 2018 midterm elections. I think that they thought, what if we did a thing where we could because these sort of Internet movements that have affected the outcomes of things have been happening for years. We've, we've talked about them on previous episodes. The Mountain Dew posted a, a contest to choose the name of a new flavor of Mountain Dew and 4chan banded together to troll it and get Hitler did nothing wrong to win as the name of the new flavor yeah, of Mountain Bodie Dew. Bodie McBoatface. Bodie McBoatface, the people who, there was a contest where Pitbull said he would perform at the Walmart in whatever town got the most votes or whatever. And the, some some people on the Something Awful forums coordinated to, to make this tiny Walmart in this small island called Kodiak, Alaska, that has like a population of 400 people to win. And so Pitbull had to go perform on this remote island that could only be accessed by ferry, things like that. Or even the or even the game stonk. Yeah, ga- game stonk, bigger things, more important things. The fact that that subreddit affected these hedge funds like this, these the, the Internet is, and these huge movements can actually affect the outcomes of things. Anonymous, a lot of the things that Anonymous have done throughout the years, just a massive amount of hackers and trolls banding together to affect the outcomes of things. So I think that they saw that and the fact that was a thing that could happen. And I think they were like, we could do this with getting a sweep of Republican victory in the midterms. I think we can do this. 
I think we can get everyone together and just literally do something that's never happened in the history of the country and just have everybody in office be Republicans, like just completely kick Democrats out of the government. I think that was the goal the entire time. So the way that they approached that goal was through this asymmetrical warfare of building an audience around this conspiracy theory. And then once they got to that point, the fuselage would break off as the rocket pushed out of the atmosphere and they'd be like, okay, we don't need that stuff anymore. Fuck the mass arrests and the... Yeah, now we'll just now we'll just be like slightly less fringe Republican influencers and we'll have we'll be able to go mainstream, we'll be able to ditch the conspiracy theory stuff and then we'll be able to make careers, maybe even in politics. Like we can play the the game to the point where we have our own mainstreaming and our own tipping point and then we just like a marjorie taylor green situation where it's actually incorporate into the system and so that at that point it was like okay now it's just now we're just going to tell people to go vote we got the audience we brought them all in they're really galvanized and passionate now all these people that we've amassed go vote yeah the the thing though that's that fucks up their plan with that is that as we both have been discussing ad nauseum that the the strength of QAnon is that it means everything to everyone because all of the silos are removed and you're it's a game of telephone and so you're constantly relying on I don't actually go to the forums but I know someone who does or I watch the videos of someone who does or I watch the videos of somebody who reads the breakdowns of somebody who does and so I, I basically know what's going on and the message of go vote you'd think would be easily communicable but it, it's a, something that requires direct real world action as opposed to just generally believing something to be true it's easy to sit in your house and be like oh yeah no uh, hillary clinton's definitely a vampire but then go drive across town and stand in line to vote you're like i don't know I'd rather just make this DiGiorno pizza. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that they that was the experiment. They thought that they could do that. They thought that they could like honeypot a a huge group of people like Trojan horse them to create a, a dynamic where these people were hanging on the every word of a person. And then for that person to at the end of it be like, go vote and that that would happen, that would work. And there would be this massive landslide victory to a historical degree where an election would be manipulated by the Internet in a way where they would literally just have a unanimous victory. So I think that in the end of 2018, when that didn't happen, I think that the people who were controlling Q, which likely pamphleted on and Baruch the Scribe, but maybe not. Maybe Baruch the Scribe had been kicked out at that point. It was mostly pamphleted on because I know that Baruch the Scribe later became like a skeptic. He started accusing Q of being fake. So maybe he wasn't involved anymore at that point, or maybe he was and the whole thing is kayfabe, or maybe it was none of them and it was somebody else. But whoever it was, they lost interest in it after that. And they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm that we built up to that whole thing. Like they basically they went and saw Endgame and they were like, "Okay, that feels like the end of the story to me. There's going to be like a million other shows and movies, but for me emotionally, that was the end. I'm I've lost interest in the MCU now. And so they were like, okay, I, I'm going to still be like use my audience and be an influencer or whatever and do that part of it, which is fun and I like doing. But I don't want to do this Q thing anymore. I'm tired of it. It's just I'm. And so that is why they handed over the keys to the Watkins, because the red Watt, wave, the uh, Watkai, the Watkai, because the red wave didn't happen. And emotionally to them, they were over it. They were done with it. The in, in game had happened. 
and they were like, ah, just, we don't want to do this anymore. Here, you have this. Do you think they sold it to them or do you think they literally just gave it to them? They probably sold it to them. Yeah, they probably sold it to them. There's no way they didn't. How much money do you think that gets? Like, that's a weird thing because it's like an invaluable piece of kind of digital real estate, but also worthless at the same time. Yeah, but that's the dynamic of selling any piece of digital property. It really is like a it's a seller's market in a lot of ways because you there's like this there's this vague esoteric value of a digital property, like a Facebook page that has a lot of followers or a Twitter account that has a lot of followers. There's a there's an ambiguous value to it of the in the implied like reach and clout and fame that it comes with. But then at the same time, it's literally just a profile on a different person's product. It's worthless. So really, it's all about what can you convince the other person this is worth? So a couple thousand, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000. What do you think they paid? There's a there's a. um there's a rumor, which I guess is almost mo- as much of a conspiracy theory as anything else, but it's a rumor that th- that Patriot Soapbox, they raised a million dollars in anonymous donations to start up their company. And they've denied that. They said that they didn't. They said they did not raise a million dollars. But the there's a the streamer, the Twitch streamer I mentioned earlier that a- apparently exposed that Pamphlet Anon was Q. He had he claimed to have access to an email that showed proof that they had raised a million dollars in donations anonymously. So maybe it wasn't a donations. Maybe it was laundered. Maybe they took a million dollars from Jim Watkins and then they laundered it into their company as anonymous donations. A million seems very high. If I was going to say how much they asked to be paid for the Q accounts, I would probably say somewhere, especially at that time, like maybe now it would be worth millions. But but at that time, I would if I was going to guess, I'd say like you could convince somebody who knew what Q was and what the value of it was, the implied clout it came with. You could convince them to pay you like 300 grand for it, I think. But maybe they laundered a million dollars into their company. Maybe Jim Watkins paid them a million and then they pretended like it was charitable donations. Six. I would definitely be on some kind of government watch list at this point for my search history if it wasn't for ExpressVPN. This message brought to you by ExpressVPN. Research extremist movements without those pesky G-men knocking down your door. Nah, I'm just kidding. We don't make money off of this show. In late December, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg underwent a lung surgery to remove a cancerous tumor. The operation went smoothly, but she had to sit out the Supreme Court hearing its first arguments of the new year. In early January of 2019, QAnon suggested that RGB was not actually recovering from surgery, but that she was actually already dead. And the deep state was merely biding their time, holding off on announcing the death until the next time that Trump and Q decided to make a big move so that they could surprise announce the death as a distraction. On January 23rd, a fire was started inside Comet Ping Pong in Washington, D.C. Remember that place? Surveillance footage showed that the fire had been started by Ryan Joselskis, a health and wellness coach from California. Authorities later discovered a video posted to the YouTube channel of Joselskis' parents, Paul and Chrissy Joselskis. They were spouting QAnon conspiracy theories about a satanic cabal controlling the world that was posted only an hour before the fire was started, heavily implying that Joselskis' motivation for starting the fire was Q-related. 
He was later apprehended in February 4th after a physical altercation with D.C. police directly outside of the Washington Monument. On January 27th, Joe M. dropped another banger, Q Dark to Light. It was just the same exact shit from the previous two videos with different music and a slightly different ending. M seems to be a one-trick pony, just repackaging the same message over and over again in hopes of bringing in more followers to the movement. In mid-February, former White House advisor Sebastian Gorka started spreading the conspiracy theory that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was secretly dead all over his social media. That is until a few days later when she made her first public appearance since her surgery, attending a performance of Notorious RGB in Song at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., on January 8th, a self-proclaimed member of the Proud Boys and a devout QAnon follower from Seattle named Bucky Wolf, who had frequently posted about his QAnon beliefs on social media, murdered his own brother by stabbing him in the head with a four-foot sword. He immediately called the police and reported what he had done. And after being arrested, he claimed he had done it because he became convinced that his brother was a deep state reptilian in disguise. When asked about his association with the Proud Boys, Leadership of the local chapter claimed he had never been accepted into the group, officially, because of existing mental issues. But Wolf had posted several photos of himself at Proud Boy events with other members. Upon discovering his belief in QAnon, his defense team used it as a major aspect of an insanity plea in his court case. And while this incident is incredibly gruesome and sad, and certainly, if nothing else, indicative of the type of people that gravitate towards these extremist conspiracy theory movements like QAnon, I wouldn't fully consider it the first QAnon-inspired death, because the murder wasn't specifically motivated by any of Q's messages, and it was clearly more to do with Wolf's pre-existing mental illness. Still shocking nonetheless. In late February, it was discovered by journalists Will Sommer and Zach Everson that an open QAnon believer worked as a pastry chef at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Golf Course Resort in Florida, directly serving the first family, and that she had since 2017. She posted frequent references to Q on her personal Instagram page, including pastries she had made at Mar-a-Lago in the shape of Q's. On March 2nd, Minecraft creator Marcus Notch Person tweeted, Q is legit. Don't trust the media. I'll bet the guy who created Animal Crossing doesn't fuck around with Q. On March 4th, it was reported that a pro-QAnon book, QAnon, An Invitation to the Great Awakening, had climbed to number 75 on the list of highest-selling books on Amazon thanks to the platform's recommendation algorithm. Also on March 4th, journalist Mike Rothschild speculated about the big Q, or in other words, why won't the media just directly ask Trump if Q is real? It's a question we would keep asking for years with no satisfying answer. It would potentially solve a lot of problems if someone in the press pit just said, President Trump, is there a high-level insider named Q working alongside you to topple a satanic pedophile cabal controlling the country? On March 5th, former Arkansas Republican Senator Linda Collins-Smith called into a Patriot Soapbox livestream to discuss her belief in QAnon. Also on March 5th, Joe M. posted a remastered version of the original masterpiece, Q, The Plan to Save the World. Hell yeah, Joe, you go through that same Hollywood cycle of endlessly remaking your classics until even that stops working, and eventually you just resort to re-releasing remastered versions of the original in order to cash in on nostalgia. On March 13th, what I believe was the very first Q-inspired murder occurred, and it was a doozy. A 24-year-old Staten Island native named Anthony Camello drove to the house of Gambino crime family boss Frank Cali. Camello pulled into Cali's driveway, hitting the back of Cali's truck with his bumper. The impact knocked Cali's license plate off. Hearing the noise, Cali came out in a robe and asked Camello what he was doing. Camello picked the license plate up off the ground, sheepishly apologized, and then handed it to Cali. Cali turned to throw the plate into the back of his truck, and when he turned around, Camello pulled out a gun and shot him ten times, killing him. Nobody understood what had happened or why Camello had shot Cali. He had no alleged connection to the man or organized crime in general. However, after being arrested, the story became much clearer. 
Camello appeared in court with a large cue drawn on the center of his hand. During interrogations, he started rambling incoherently about conspiracy theories involving the deep state and underground satanic cabals. He was a cue believer, and he had become convinced that Cali was part of the cabal and needed to be taken down. He killed for Q. Incidentally, Camello's lawyers would go on to successfully be able to argue in court that Camello was mentally unfit to go to trial based solely on his claims of believing in the QAnon conspiracy theory, and has since been transferred to a mental institution rather than be sentenced to jail. On March 22nd, a Q influencer named Praying Medic posted a video, Who is Rachel Chandler? First of all, who is Praying Medic? Praying Medic is a paramedic living in Arizona who claims that, at some point in the early 2000s, he was visited by God, who taught him how to heal the patients he loaded onto his ambulance with nothing but the power of prayer. Here's his biography from his website. My life, prior to the year 2000, was pretty ordinary. I was an atheist, doing the best I could to keep things moving in a positive direction. One day, I had an encounter with Jesus in the bunk room of the fire station that forever changed my life. In 2008, God appeared to me in a dream and said he would heal my patients if I prayed for them. I didn't believe in healing at the time, but I reluctantly began praying. I had no idea what I was doing, but along the way, I stumbled upon some keys to operating in healing and miracles. In 2009, I began blogging about the people that I prayed with who were being healed. I write about a variety of subjects, including healings, dreams, seeing the spirit, hearing the voice of God, economics, politics, and QAnon. And here's him telling a story on It's Supernatural with Sid Roth about an event that definitely actually happened and is 100% true. It was a transfer from one hospital to another. This man had, uh, he had a, a, an extensive health history. He had kidney failure. He was on dialysis. He had a GI bleed that had been going on for three days, and his hematocrit and hemoglobin were critical. He'd pretty much almost bled to death. So the emergency doctor transfused six units of blood, called for us to transport him to another hospital for surgery. So uh, we get him in the ambulance, and I'm looking at his hospital face sheet, and I see that he's a Muslim. And I thought, there's no way this guy's going to let me pray for him. <laughs> but uh, we, we were getting to know each other, having some conversation. And I said, hey, I'd, I'd like to know if I could pray for you. What? Sometimes what is happening? It's like a dramatic re reenactment they've created healed. based on this story. But just using like these random old men. And the guy who's supposed to be Muslim is just like a That's white dude. Fine. Yeah, he's just an old... That because of course, cool. like, there's no Muslim people that work for this fucking What's show. <laughs> this fucking guy. I have this killer headache. And I just prayed for him. I said, I command this headache to come out in Jesus' name. And I asked him how the pain was. He said, it's about a seven. I said, I'm going to pray again. I prayed again. After the second time, it was about a five. I prayed again. It was about a three. I prayed one more time. The pain Persistence wow. is the key. And he said all the pain was gone. His headache was gone. And I said, well, you just got healed by a Jewish carpenter who died 2,000 years ago. <laughs> he says, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, well, yes, I am. He goes, you know, there's something about you Christians. I just want to let you know that Jesus couldn't be God. And I said, look, I don't want to argue with you about religion. I want to get you healed. So I said, look, you've got some serious bleeding going on. They're going to do surgery. What a piece of shit. What a piece of shit. In what his, a like, piece of fucking shit. In his like bullshit, straw man, completely made up story. None of that happened. He goes and he sees this guy. And in this story, he's like this pious 
fucking great guy who's he just wants to talk and he's he heals this guy and he prays for him and then this guy after just being like miraculously healed by praying and being helped by him he still can't help but just giving in to his lesser muslim like primitive fucking urges and he still criticizes him and is like you know what you're a christian and christians are not right and then he's like i don't want to argue i just want to heal you what a fucking piece of shit i hate it i hate it to use a muslim person in your fake story and then paint them as this like petty ungrateful asshole in your definitely real story that actually happened i hate it I hate it. I hate it so much. Praying Medic looks like Michael Chiklis just came on David Duke's back. <laughs> if I'm going to look at the scale of QAnon influencers, I would say that I'm, I find Joe M the most endearing. If I was going to say any of these people were like even remotely redeemable as human beings, it would be Joe M. And I think I might hate Praying Medic the most. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, there's. <laughs> The, the interesting thing about Joe M is that he feels like somebody who is actually aware of how insidious and crazy this all is and yet still believes it, but is trying to like rehab it, which in some ways is more insidious, but in some ways is a little bit more kind of like all this shit's kayfabe anyway. So at least you're trying to make a version of it that's like, I only kind of hate the Jews. And the praying medic thing is just so smarmy and so like. Just over the top, holier than thou. What a fucking piece of shit. What a fucking piece of shit. And though Praying Medic has published several books about his prayer healing techniques, at some point in early 2018, he fell into the QAnon movement and became one of its most popular proponents and influencers. So anyway, he posted this video, which unfortunately has been completely scrubbed from the internet, but the claims he makes essentially are this. Through the guiding principles that a broken clock is right twice a day, one of the things that QAnon had been zeroed in on long before it broke into the mainstream was that Jeffrey Epstein was a pedophilic monster running an actual, real-life child trafficking operation from his remote, privately owned island. It wasn't difficult to be right about this, however, considering that Epstein had already been charged and went to trial and prison for trafficking allegations back in 2008, getting let off by a lenient judge based on his tremendous wealth and influence, and that the goings-on at his island were an open secret. But at any rate, Epstein had been a topic of discussion with the QAnon movement for a while. Rachel Chandler was believed to have been one of Jeffrey Epstein's madams, an underage girl tasked with meeting and befriending other minors and luring them into meetings with Epstein and becoming one of his victims. The theory was entirely based on a single photo. This is the picture. Yeah, it's a photo of... It's a photo of Bill Clinton and a woman who appears to be, I don't know, maybe in her early 20s, maybe late teens. And they're standing side by side in what appears to be like the bunk of a private jet. Like, not the bunk. What are those things called? The It's either like a hotel. No, because it has an exit sign and there's a painting on the wall. So I don't know where they are, but they're in some sort of... It's a cabin of a private jet. Yeah, so they're in a... They're in a private ca- plane, not jet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cabin of a private plane. And this seems to be a little while ago, judging from the rate at which Bill Clinton and is slowly turning into the crypt keeper. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where's his fucking adrenochrome? Because he, he looks like shit. Yeah. Yeah. He's been auditioning or method. He's been preparing method style for a role as the Arkansas crypt keeper for gone on about 10 years now. So yeah, the, the, the adrenochrome is not working for him. <laughs> 
Pew posted the photo in a drop, claiming that it was Bill Clinton on Jeffrey Epstein's private plane standing next to a girl named Rachel Chandler. The Q followers, including Praying Medic, filled in the rest. However, in reality, while Clinton did fly on Epstein's private jet multiple times, this particular photo was not from one of those times. The photo was taken in 2006 aboard the private plane of billionaire venture capitalist Ron Burkle, who has no credible allegations of pedophilia or child trafficking against him. Rachel, who was not underage, like many QAnon followers said, was a 19-year-old college student at the time, had parents who were close friends with Burkle, and she had been invited to fly on the plane as a guest. Clinton happened to be also invited for the flight at the time, and Chandler couldn't help but take a photo with the former president. The photo was originally posted on gossip site Gawker.com, along with the accompanying correct info about how old Chandler was and what plane they were flying on. Chandler had zero connection to Epstein. When questioned about the photo, journalist Julie K. Brown, who was instrumental in taking down Epstein later that year when she published a bombshell expose on his crimes that involved meeting with and interviewing several of the victims, said she never once saw the girl in any of her research or investigation. The poor woman who, circa 2019, was a photographer and co-founder of a New York-based modeling agency, was tracked down by QAnon followers and harassed because of these entirely false accusations based on a photo she took when she was 19. In late March, Attorney General Bill Barr's summary of the final official Mueller report was released. The thing that Q believers have been claiming was secretly going to implicate the deep state cabal in a series of treasonous crimes and trigger the storm of mass arrests of satanic pedophile Democrats, and it did not. This didn't seem to deter the movement, though at this point they've been accustomed to disappointment. Q themselves hardly acknowledged the nothing burger. In early April, another conspiracy theory was added to QAnon. The theory was actually fairly old, having originated in 2007 and also supremely and undeniably fake. It came from a Russian hoax site called What Do You Mean that posted intentionally fabricated and inflammatory stories. However, once it started to be discussed by Q followers, it quickly gained a ton of popularity. The theory was that German Chancellor Angela Merkel was actually the secret daughter of Adolf Hitler. The theory was based on supposed similarities in facial structure between Merkel and Hitler's mother. Is she even the right age? What do you mean? The, oh. No, she definitely. No, she's definitely not. We'll, we'll we'll get to that. But yeah, not even close. No. So what do you think here, Dave? They don't look. No, they don't look anything alike. No. Also, this photo of Angela Merkel is from 20 years ago. She's wearing like a new wave jacket. This is like Angela Merkel in college. Like, what? oh yeah, it definitely is. But yeah, it's like other than she is a white woman, <laughs> like it's not. There's no resemblance at all. No, not like maybe her deeply inset eyes. Like that's a similarity. The the nose, the mouth, the roundness of the face. There's the, yeah, it just doesn't look like the same person at all. Or it doesn't look like a family resemblance. They're not saying it's the same person, but yeah, it doesn't look like a family resemblance. Now, Merkel was born 10 years after Hitler committed suicide. So how is this possible? That's because Hitler had his sperm frozen, and then years later, Eva Braun's sister Gretel was inseminated with a sperm in a procedure carried out by Auschwitz surgeon Karl Klauberg in order to give birth to Merkel, a perfect genetic descendant of Hitler who could take back control of Germany. In regards to the theory, our boy Joe M tweeted, Is Merkel also related to Obama? Is that why she hugged him like her child when meeting in Germany? That means Obama is a Hitler who is a Rothschild. So how does this work? Dig. This could very well be proven soon. What? 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 How? What? How could it be proven? What are you talking about? My boy Joe M, you were in the you were a centrist of the conspiracy theorists. Now you're going off the deep end. Bro, this is just nah. I'll bet he wouldn't put that shit in his vague ass Abercrombie and Fitch-ified QAnon videos. 
Flashing back to April 27th, former FBI Director James Comey participated in a Twitter hashtag trend that was going on at the time called Five Jobs I've Had, where you tweet out five jobs you've had in your life. His list was grocery store clerk, vocal soloist for church weddings, chemist, strike replacement high school teacher, FBI director interrupted, hashtag five jobs I've had. Because Comey is deeply tied up in Cohen, uh, in, in, in QAnon, Cohenon, that's like a... Cons- conspiracy theory about the coen brothers movies all being true yeah if you listen to the soundtrack for no country for old men the cricket noises if you slow it down to 120 bpm they actually have morse code hidden in them and if you translate the morse code it says ah fucking whatever abandoning the joke I'm okay. it all is so dark it's so dark that it's hard to make jokes because they all just lead to the same place which is just like child rape and cannibalism like it's there's no space for like twisting the diamond to see the lights refracting through it it's all just cannibalism and rape blood simple blood libel (laughs) blood libel because Comey is deeply tied up in QAnon, Q followers noticed the tweet and immediately started theorizing about how it could contain a secret meaning. Because nothing in this world can just be a thing that happened. The first thing they did was speculate that the hashtag five jobs I had was an anagram for five jihads. Even though, much like all the anagrams Dave ever claims exist on this show, the anagram doesn't actually fully work out and there are several leftover letters. Well, you know, if you actually put together several leftover letters... That's actually an anagram for Hillsmer stop eating all the peanut butter and jelly. Yep, that's I trust you. Then they took the first letter of each job on the list, GVCSF, and Googled it, which came up with the Grass Valley Charter School in Grass Valley, California. The school was scheduled to have a fundraiser event on May 11th called the Blue Marble Jubilee. So Q followers theorized that James Comey was going to stage a false flag shooting event at the school during the Jubilee and kill hundreds of kids in order to push for gun control laws. They immediately began flooding the FBI and the school with calls warning of this impending catastrophe. Completely confused but concerned, the school decided to cancel the event on May 11th. After the school was able to finally get a grasp on the situation and understand what was going on, they later stated that they had thought the entire thing was stupid and that they were frustrated that a bunch of conspiracy theorists on the internet ruined their event for no reason. We had to take it seriously. The tweets themselves, there are thousands. There was no real threat to, and our law enforcement said the same, to our event or our school. Even though the theories didn't hold any evidence or fact, we know from current and recent events that in fact, what these theories do is embolden unstable individuals to take action, and most often, dangerous action. And we felt we could not take that risk. This would have been the third consecutive year for the event, which had raised upwards of $20,000 for the school in previous years, and they were hoping to make as much as 25000 this year. But since they had already spent 10000 on the event that couldn't be refunded on such short notice, they couldn't afford to reschedule the event. This stupid QAnon theory had completely ruined their chances of fundraising for the entire year. And so not only have we lost that, but the real heartbreak is that loss for the kids. Each year, the students create art to auction off for the event, and often look forward to it as an end-of-year party. Because, you know, these QAnon people at the end of the day don't actually care about helping kids, and they don't care who they affect with their bullshit. On May 17th, Megastar Cher tweeted, Something is coming. And on May 19th, she tweeted, Anon. Naturally, this got QAnon stirring, thinking that Cher might be on the team and alluding to some kind of major event. 
However, shortly afterwards, Cher dropped an announcement about her new line of perfume. Anon means soon in Old English. Cher later became adopted into QAnon as one of the deep state pedophiles using adrenochrome to keep herself staying young. Because people just can't fathom the concepts of good genetics, the high-quality diet, lifestyle, and medical access of a rich person, and plastic surgery. Also in mid-May, an internal conflict arose in the Q influencer community. It all centered around a new-age spiritual grifter from the 1980s named Jay-Z Knight, who claimed that she could channel a 35,000-year-old warrior god named Ramtha into her body. She had famously gone on the Merv Griffin Show in 1985 to demonstrate this. Love it! Ramtha doesn't like the hair. He gets in his face. Ah. <laughs> How much preparation now to call on your entity? Um, I don't call on him. I, it's a matter of me becoming aligned and becoming at peace and uh, not being nervous. Okay. And once I do that... Are you that, all right? Am I all right? Yeah. Are you nervous? Well, I've never been on your show before. Oh. oh okay. See how comfortable it is? <laughs> yes, it's fabulous. <laughs> So, uh, only take a moment or two. Big Martha Stewart psychic grifter vibes. Just wait. Just watch. She's like rocking back and forth. She's full 80s'd out. She's got the shoulder pads. Something's something's overcome her. She's clear. She's been something has in taken control of her body. Clutching her collarbone with her hand, rocking back and forth. She's gone slack, like she's fallen asleep. Head is rolled down. Her hands are just in her lap. God, what a fucking ham! This is this. It's gonna get. It's gonna get good. <laughs> Stretching, standing up. She really, she really draws this transformation out. Man, this is ridiculous! Ridiculous! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> Mm. You are well this day in your time? Yes, thank you. Sit down here. This is that which is called television. Mm-hmm. The to, tube. To capture a moment forever. You were a little tough to wake up today. Were you sleeping when we got to you? Wake up? Were you sleeping? What is slumber, entity? I am never in slumber Awake? He's, I hate this. He said, were you sleeping? And then Ramtha said, what is slumber, entity? Where, if you don't know what sleeping is, then where'd you get slumber from? He didn't say slumber. He said sleeping. I hate this so much. I can't believe this. Who speaks English? Earlier in 2018, Knight had decided to latch herself onto the QAnon community. She became a vocal proponent of Q and started talking about the QAnon conspiracy at her live events selling Q-related merchandise to her followers and attempting to weave her personal brand of conspiracy theory into the Quanon and claim that Q was also a divine being similar to Ramtha. She was welcomed into the community by some of the more paranormal and new age sympathetic Q people such as Jordan Sather, a Q influencer who wove ancient alien new age spirituality into his brand of QAnon belief. In fact, Sather had put forth his own particularly esoteric theory recently that was controversial within the Quanon. His belief was that there was something called the QAnon trip code book list. Basically, throughout Q's existence on 4chan and 8chan, they used a trip code, an encoded password used on image boards to verify the identity of an anonymous poster so that people could be sure that all of their posts were coming from the same person. The user enters a password into their screen name on the board. The board automatically scrambles the password, and the scrambled version of the password gets displayed on their posts. 
periodically, Q would change their trip code because it's actually relatively easy to crack trip codes, and it was necessary to alternate them so that others wouldn't be able to start posting SQ themselves. Sather believed that if you plugged these trip code numbers into Google, you would come up with a list of books that Q was secretly recommending that you should read. And when you plugged in Q's various trip codes, they actually did bring up certain Q-related books. However, the reason for this was that people were just adding the trip codes into the metadata for their QAnon books on platforms like Amazon so that they would come up in search results for these numbers. It was actually just another grift. And in the spirit of that grift, Jay-Z Knight started claiming that her book, or rather a book written by Ramtha through her, Last Waltz of the Tyrants, was number one on the QAnon trip code list, and that every single trip code would lead to the book. Again, the reason for this was that she just put all the trip codes into the metadata of the book's sales page. A handful of Q influencers in the community decided to embrace Knight. A QAnon-themed musician, JT Wild, performed songs at her compound, The Ranch. And two other large Q influencers, In The Matrix and Shady Groove, also agreed to go to the ranch to give talks. However, there were other influencers who were highly critical of Knight and warned against allowing her into the community. Another huge Q influencer with a popular website named Neon Revolt posted a lengthy blog update going through JD Knight's history as a charlatan and grifter and admonishing the other Q influencers who were collaborating with her. Joe M also came out with a post warning against working with Knight. The skeptic's primary concern was that Knight and her channeling of an ancient god would make the QAnon movement look foolish to the outside world, which they were obviously correct about. But another motivation was likely that Knight was an old-school grifter who had been around for decades, had thousands of devout followers, and was mildly famous, and that her presence within the QAnon community might hog a bit of the oxygen in the room and there wouldn't be enough grift to go around for them. The people who had helped build the movement from the ground up because a clairvoyant medium channeling an ancient god is no less ridiculous sounding than concepts that Joe M. and Neon Revolt had pushed, such as that Angela Merkel was the secret daughter of Adolf Hitler, who had been created by inseminating his frozen sperm into the sister of his also-dead wife a decade after he was killed in a secret Nazi plot to take back control of Germany after the fall of the Third Reich, and that her entire life and political career that led to becoming the Chancellor were all preordained and planned a theory that was literally created on a Russian hoax site that purposely made up lies to get clicks. On May 30th, an FBI intelligence bulletin memo from the Phoenix field office identified QAnon-driven extremists as a domestic terrorism threat. The document cited a number of arrests related to QAnon, some of which had not been published before. According to the memo, This is the first FBI product examining the threat from conspiracy theory-driven domestic extremists and providing a baseline for future intelligence products. The FBI assesses that these conspiracy theories very likely will emerge, spread, and evolve in the modern information marketplace, occasionally driving both groups and individual extremists to carry out criminal or violent acts. On June 3rd, Q influencer Neon Revolt launched his book, Revolution Q, The Story of QAnon and the Second Great Awakening. There's a sense when you're watching QAnon. That you're watching history being written in real time. And more than being mere witnesses to history, you begin to realize that we are all active participants in one of the greatest stories that will ever be told. Hi, I'm Neon Revolt, and yes, this is what I actually sound like. And today I want to talk to you about this book I wrote 
called Revolution Q, the story of QAnon and the Second Great Awakening. What Q is about and what must come to pass if we intend to preserve peace, freedom, and prosperity for all future generations. But if you're someone who has been following Q since the beginning, don't worry. This book is jam-packed with fresh information, too. Information that will give you a more robust understanding. I, I might hate Neon Revolt almost as much as uh, Praying Medic, but we'll talk about the reason for that next episode. On June 4th, podcaster and Twitter commentator Poker and Politics undertook the Herculean task of starting a running Twitter thread chronicling every single claim made in Q-drops and how they have failed to come to pass or been debunked. Link in the show notes if you really want to go through and do what we did not have time to do here. Systematically debunk all of the claims of Q. On June 6th, it was reported that Linda Collins-Smith, the QAnon follower former Arkansas senator who had appeared on Patriot Soapbox livestream earlier in the year, was found dead in her home from a gunshot wound. Not much was released about the murder at the time, so QAnon followers started speculating that she had been murdered for her beliefs. That because she believed in Q and was fighting the good fight, she had been assassinated by Hillary Clinton and added to the, quote, Clinton body count. A list of people that Hillary Clinton has had murdered over the years in various ways to cover up her crimes or further her goals. The belief was that she had been secretly working to expose a massive money laundering scheme in the Arkansas Child Protective Service System and reveal that the Clinton Foundation had been involved in a scheme to siphon 27 million children out of the Arkansas CPS to funnel into their child trafficking ring. Of course, there isn't anywhere even close to that number of kids in CPS care in the entire country, let alone Arkansas. In reality, it was later discovered, as more details were revealed about the case, that Colin Smith had been murdered by Rebecca O'Donnell, one of her employees, who had been secretly writing forged checks to siphon money out of her bank account, and killed her for monetary gain. The initial report had also been wrong, and Colin Smith was actually stabbed to death, not shot. While in jail awaiting trial, O'Donnell reportedly tried to bribe several inmates into murdering people involved with the case once they were released. Yeah, she was a fucking maniac. Also on June 6th, Hillary Clinton revealed that her brother, Tony Rodham, had died suddenly. Q believers theorized that she had murdered him before he could reveal bombshell secrets about her deep state goings-on. In mid-June, another QAnon infight broke out. Co-authors of the popular QAnon ebook QAnon and Invitation to the Great Awakening, a book that had rocketed up the Amazon charts earlier in the year and become the 75th highest-selling book on the platform, started quarreling. The fight centered on the fact that a few of the 14 co-authors of the book, namely a Q influencer named Dustin Nemos, wanted to create an audiobook version and also produce a sequel to the popular book. However, another QAnon influencer, our baby boy Joe M, who not only had co-authorship of the book and therefore veto power in any decisions made about it, but also was easily the most famous of the authors of the book that held a lot of sway in the QAnon community, didn't want to do either because he didn't want to be accused of being a grifter. Our boy has integrity, and you gotta respect it. Nemos and a few other authors were angry and frustrated at M standing in their way of making the audiobook or sequel, and the two camps started trashing each other on social media, alternatively calling each other fake patriots. Also in mid-June, the first of the conspiracy theories centered around future Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden started surfacing in the Q community. QAnon, as well as a lot of mainstream conservatives, had already centered on the theory that Biden was a pedophile, based on a few videos of him exhibiting awkward, extremely uncomfortable behavior with young children at public events. For the record, the videos are admittedly very cringeworthy to watch, and certainly examples of Biden trying way too hard to come off like a loving and jovial grandpa type with the kids and in the process overstepping boundaries with his invasion of their personal space and overly affectionate behavior. But certainly not factual evidence that he is a pedophile. 
especially considering that actual pedophiles go to great lengths to conceal their behaviors and desires from other people and would never openly display their pedophilic tendencies while on camera for a nationally broadcasted event. And, I don't know, just like anybody else in the story, maybe he is some kind of pedophile. The videos are certainly creepy and I'm not trying to defend them. I'm just pointing out that they are not factual evidence that he is a pedophile, and in my opinion, they are more indicative of the fact that he's an unself-aware old man who doesn't realize he's coming off like more of a creep than a warm and fatherly politician. And also, keeping in mind that there are actual credible accusations of inappropriate behavior with women involved in his campaign in the past, this certainly isn't about excusing any of Biden's behavior. However, none of this has any bearing on the specific conspiracy theory that QAnon was about to weave about him. A claim started making its way around social media that a former college roommate of Biden's at Syracuse Law School, Paul Tatchell, had stated in an interview that Biden admitted to him that he was sexually attracted to children. This quote was massively pushed by QAnon followers right around the time that national polls were starting to come out, showing him as a favorite for the 2020 Democratic presidential run. So was this true? No. The alleged quote originated from a single source, an author named Baxter Dimitri on a site called NewsPunch.com, who claimed to have interviewed Tatchell. NewsPunch is another one of those notorious hoax sites that publishes made-up stories to trick older people who don't know any better into giving them clicks and an investigation showed that there had never been any Paul Tatchell that attended Syracuse Law School. In the Quanon, some followers believed that JFK Jr. was finally going to reveal himself to the world on July 4th of 2019. Whether or not they thought it was going to involve Vincent Fusca tossing off his fedora and spearing away the shoe polish, or something else. Either way, it didn't happen. Also on July 4th, the now popular subreddit r QAnon Casualties was created. This is the description of the community from the subreddit's bio. Have a friend or loved one taken in by QAnon? Look here for support, resources, and a place to vent. Peruse old posts, settle in and relax. Learn to heal, deal, and deprogram. Posts should relate to the direct experience of dealing with QAnon-adjacent folk. This can include posts with support, info, or practical advice. Anyone can comment, but be substantive and in good faith. Also in early July, Jeffrey Epstein was arrested on multiple charges of minor abuse, child trafficking, and sexual assault against minors in connection with his decades-long pedophilic empire operating out of his private island only accessible by plane. Q followers rejoiced, celebrating their, quote, victory against the deep state cabal. In their mind, they and Q had fought tirelessly to bring the sadistic crimes of Epstein to light and spread enough awareness to coax the authorities into finally toppling his child trafficking empire. There was an explosion of gloating on social media. Here's our boy Joe M on Twitter at the time. Q promises made, Q promises kept. Q themselves dropped this about the Epstein revelation. Understand what is happening. Epstein is just the beginning. They will stop at nothing to spin this to control the narrative and try to affect the 2020 election. But we have been groomed for this moment and we are now fully prepared to strike back together. Hashtag where we go one, we go all. The usage of the word groomed in this context is very unfortunate. Yeah, it's real. That's, that's not thought out. So was Q finally right about something? And had this massive citizen journalist slash digital soldier collective actually affected real change in the world and brought down a despicable criminal? Not really at all. Jeffrey Epstein, his child trafficking crimes and his connection to powerful elites in politics had been a major topic of discussion and theorizing in the Quanon. However, Hugh themselves had only ever mentioned Epstein nine times in drops, and they had all been rhetorical questions parroting the same talking points about Epstein being a pedophile, hanging out with rich elites, and child trafficking going on at his island. There was no predictions made even once, and nothing that Q ever said was based on any insider information. It was all publicly available knowledge. 
After all, as previously stated, Epstein was jailed for 13 months, but escaped extreme punishment because he's rich and the justice system is corrupt and tailored towards wealthy and powerful people. Everyone already knew all of this stuff. It was open knowledge. The only original things that the Q movement actually added to the entire story of Epstein was that he had underground dungeons and interconnected networks of child trafficking tunnels underground on his island, none of which has actually been proven as true. So, okay, maybe Q didn't really predict anything or have any kind of secret knowledge they brought to light, but certainly the Q followers banding together to spread awareness about Epstein was what ultimately brought him to justice, right? No. Epstein's arrest and the toppling of his empire can almost exclusively be attributed to the brave reporting of journalist Julie K. Brown, as well as the former victims of Epstein she convinced to come forward with their stories in a bombshell expose published in 2018 that convinced authorities to reopen their case on Epstein. QAnon had literally nothing to do with it. It was through the work of a journalist from the fucking MSM Mockingbird Media that Epstein was finally taken down, and she did so at risk of her own career, with several figures within her industry warning her that her story would be shut down before it could be published, and that she would be blackballed from the journalist world for barking up this tree, just as had happened to ABC News anchor Amy Robach three years prior to Brown's story being published, when she had assembled a group of his former victims and attempted to publish the exact same expose, only for it to be killed by ABC after threats of massive lawsuits from the Epstein camp. Epstein was exposed because of the bravery of these women, the journalists and the victims, and had nothing to do with a bunch of couch jockeys sitting at home tweeting. And it certainly had nothing to do with Trump, who, much to the perpetual existential frustration of QAnon followers who worship him as their sole hero of the world, was great friends with Jeffrey Epstein and was one of the powerful elites who frequently visited his island. The dude hung out with Epstein constantly, and Epstein frequented Trump's Mar-a-Lago golf course resort. But if you bring this up to a Q follower, they'll either deflect and say, Bill Clinton flew to Epstein Island 22 times. Which, like, yeah, I know. I have zero allegiance to Bill Clinton. The dude is clearly shady, and his involvement with Epstein should be investigated. Or they will claim that Trump was working undercover to take Epstein down from within. Which is funny, because... If that were actually true, Trump sucks at undercover sting operations because he never took Epstein down. He just failed. On July 17th, a Q follower posted a handwritten thank you note that they had personally received from General Michael Flynn, who, despite publicly distancing himself from the QAnon movement and claiming he had never had anything to do with it, signed the note WWG1WGA. On July 28th, a tragic mass shooting happened at the Garlic Festival in Gilroy, California. Twelve people were killed, including a six-year-old boy, before authorities were able to kill the shooter. QAnon, of course, theorized it was a false flag event meant to incite gun control laws. In August, a, quote, digital soldiers conference was announced for the following month in Atlanta. The stated purpose was to prepare, quote, patriotic social media warriors for a coming, quote, digital civil war. The announcement for the event prominently displayed a Q spelled in stars on the blue field of an American flag. Scheduled speakers for the event included former Trump aides Michael Flynn and George Papadopoulos, as well as Gina Loudon a Trump friend and member of his campaign media advisory board, singer Joy Via, and Bill Mitchell, a radio host and ardent Trump supporter. The host of the event, Rich Granville, CEO of Yippee Inc., a firm that markets the Yippee search engine, which it claims is free of censorship of conservative views, said that the event was an intelligence enterprise with high-level White House connections. However, the event was also set up as a fundraiser to collect funds to aid Michael Flynn and his legal fees for his ongoing DOJ case. 
He denies the Q flag was a reference to QAnon, though he had numerous references to QAnon on his Twitter. In early August, 8chan creator Frederick Brennan began publicly calling for the U.S. government and private internet service providers and web hosts to shut down the site, which he felt had become a dangerous hub for extremist radicalization linked to several acts of violence, such as the mosque shooting that had occurred in Christchurch, New Zealand back in March. The shooter had been an active 8chan user who had posted his manifesto directly on the Chan boards shortly before walking into the mosque and killing 51 people. He also live-streamed the entire shooting on the board, and hundreds of 8chan users watched the stream, cheering him on and reacting to the events unfolding on screen like they were watching fucking PewDiePie play Fortnite. Due to Brennan's media campaign against 8chan, the mainstream media began paying more attention to the site, and specifically its owner, U.S. expatriate businessman pig farmer Jim Watkins. This was the beginning of Watkins and his son Ron being introduced into the national conversation. Following three mass shootings in 2019, Christchurch, New Zealand, Poway, California in April, El Paso, Texas in August, in which the perpetrators of each used 8chan as a platform to spread their manifesto, there was an increased pressure on those providing 8chan's internet services to terminate their support, mostly spearheaded by Brennan. Matthew Prince, CEO of Cloudflare, initially defended his firm's technological support of 8chan on August 3rd, 2019, the day of the El Paso shooting. What happened in El Paso today is abhorrent in every possible way, and it's ugly. And I hate that there's any association between us and that. For us, the question is which is the worse evil? I think it's the fucking mass shooting! I think that's the worst evil. Yeah, I don't think that's I don't think that's a hot take. I don't think it's a hot take to be like mass shootings bad. He's insinuating that there's some kind of gray area of what's worse, stopping a mass shooting or inhibiting somebody's free speech, but I think it's the horrible deaths of like dozens of people and it has nothing to do with free speech because it's a website that doesn't have anything to do with your speech being suppressed by the government. However, by the next day, August 4th, with increasing press attention, Cloudflare changed its position and rescinded its support for 8chan effective midnight August 5th Pacific time, potentially leaving the site open for denial of service attacks. Prince stated, Unfortunately, the action we take today won't fix hate online. It will almost certainly not even remove 8chan from the internet, but it's the right thing to do. Tuckows also terminated its support as 8chan's domain name registrar, making the site difficult to access. In the wake of Cloudflare and Tuckhouse changes, 8chan switched its domain registrar to BitMitigate, a division of Epic, a provider that had previously serviced far-right sites like Gab and the Daily Stormer. After 8chan moved to Epic, the company's CEO, Rob Monster, wrote, Oh my god, his name's Rob Monster? Oh my god. <laughs> That's either like an insanely ironic name or a shitty nickname he gave himself. Freedom of speech and expression are fundamental rights in a free society. We enter into a slippery slope when we start to limit speech that makes us uncomfortable. However, Voxility, the company that provides BitMitigate and Epic with its own servers and internet connectivity, then took steps to stop leasing servers to BitMitigate, taking the site offline and stated that the intended use of their servers violated the acceptable use policy. Monster changed his decision to provide content hosting to 8chan soon after the company's removal from Voxility, citing concerns that 8chan did not have the ability to adequately moderate content. However, Ars Technica noted that the company had begun providing 8chan with DNS services. Although the website was unreachable through its usual domain on the clearnet, users continued to access the site through its IP address and via its .onion address on the Tor Hidden Services darknet. Security researchers and terrorism analyst Rita Katz noted that a site claiming to be 8chan had also appeared on Zeronet, 
another dark web network, although an 8chan administrator tweeted that their team was not the one running the site. What was notable about the ZeroNet version of 8chan was that, in order to eschew the issue of finding server companies willing to host the site, ZeroNet functioned as a peer-to-peer service that used the network of computers of users of the site to host the site. Similar to how Napster worked, the files for the site and all the content uploaded to them were downloaded and stored on all of the computers of the people who went to that site. And because, as we know, a sizable portion of 8chan was dedicated to uploading child pornography, this meant that the ZeroNet 8chan was literally downloading child porn videos to its users' computers without them realizing it. Oh, Jesus Christ. These people were just so dogmatically obsessed with the idea of, you can't violate my free speech, that they were just letting a site put child porn on their computers in service of this ideal. You know what they say, peer-to-peer is participation. That's not even like a clever thing. That's just true. That's what they say. They say peer-to-peer is participation, and they're right. (laughs) That's literally what peer-to-peer is. Yeah, they're right. (laughs) They're right about the peers, putting their other peers in the peers. If you don't want peers getting put inside you, don't invite those peers in, because you'll be participating in that peer-to-peer. More like fucking CP-to-CP. Air horn noise. Once this was discovered, the ZeroNet version of 8chan was quickly deleted. On August 6, 2019, the United States House Committee on Homeland Security called the 8chan's owner, Jim Watkins, an American living in the Philippines, to testify about the website's efforts to tackle, quote, proliferation of extremist content, including white supremacist content. On August 11, 2019, Watkins uploaded a video saying that 8chan had been offline voluntarily and that it would go back online after he spoke with the Homeland Security Committee. In early September, Watkins traveled to Washington, D.C. for congressional questioning. In an interview with the Washington Post, Watkins said that 8chan staff were building protections against cyber attacks to replace Cloudflare services, and that the website could come back online as early as mid-September. It should be noted that much of this can be attributed to Brennan, who tirelessly worked to contact all these companies and individually inform them of the situation with 8chan and the type of content it hosted in order to continually get 8chan deplatformed no matter how many times it popped back up online. All he had to do was get in contact with whoever was in charge at whatever web domain or hosting company 8chan had convinced to take them on and speak the words, there's child porn in them, Narchans and 8chan would be offline once again. It should also be noted that in most of these cases, the companies were literally willing to continue hosting 8chan as long as Jim Watkins committed to moderating the child porn and violent extremist content off of the site, and he consistently refused. All of these discussions of, oh, they're silencing us, it's it's silencing free speech, they're silencing conservative views and all this stuff like that, are literally not true because all of these sites, every single one of the, or most of these sites literally were like, okay, this guy, Frederick Brennan called us and and told us this stuff. We'll continue providing hosting for you. Just get rid of the child porn and the like extremist, like shooter shit. And Jim Watkins said, no. Are you surprised that the Watkai in chief is a piece of shit? Not in the slightest. For the time being, 8chan was just gone. Q had nowhere to post their drops because they had promised long ago that there would be, quote, no outside comms. Still, it struck everyone as suspicious that a supposed high-level government insider would just stop informing their followers about the deep state pedophile cabal that they were helping to fight simply because some dumb website they posted on was taken down. Why wouldn't this government superhero just post somewhere else if their work was so important for the fate of humanity? Why remain loyal to this specific, dumb, not even that secure website that had actual child porn hosted on it? Could it be that perhaps the owners of the site were Q? 
or were at least in direct partnership with whatever phony grifter was acting as Q. Whatever the case, Q went dark for this period because they had nowhere to post. And the mainline Q conversation had to continue on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Vote, Gab, etc. without a leader. On August 10th, Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his jail cell from an apparent suicide by hanging with a bed sheet from the top bunk of his bed. He would no longer be able to stand trial, testify in court, or trade any information he might have had on other people involved in his child trafficking operation in exchange for leniency or reduced sentences. The immediate conspiracy theory that exploded on social media the following day was that he hadn't, in fact, committed suicide, but that he was, quote, suicided, or, in other words, secretly murdered by some powerful figure that didn't want him to be able to testify in court or leak any of the information he had. But this wasn't even really that much of a conspiracy theory, and it wasn't confined to the fringes of the QAnon movement. Almost everyone, regardless of political affiliation, almost universally believed that he hadn't actually committed suicide, but that he was in fact murdered, or that it was at least some kind of fishy situation. The phrase and hashtag Epstein didn't kill himself became a rallying cry for QAnon, mainstream Republicans, and far-left progressives alike. It might have just been exclusively right-of-center neoliberals who didn't believe the theory to some capacity. And rightly so, because the details around this death were genuinely shady. When Epstein was placed in the Security Housing Unit, SHU, the jail informed the Justice Department that he would have a cellmate and that a guard would look into the cell every 30 minutes. These procedures were not followed on the night that he died. On August 9th, Epstein's cellmate was transferred and no replacement was brought in. The evening of his death, Epstein met with his lawyers, who described him as upbeat before being escorted back to the SHU at 7.49pm by guard Tavel Noel. CCTV footage show that the two guards failed to perform the required institutional count at 10pm, and recorded Noel briefly walking by Epstein's cell at 10.30pm, the last time the guard entered the tier where his cell was located. Through the night, in violation of the jail's normal procedure, Epstein was not checked every 30 minutes. The two guards assigned to check his cell overnight, Noel and Michael Thomas, fell asleep at their desk for about three hours and later falsified related records. Two cameras in front of Epstein's cell were malfunctioning that night. Another camera had footage that was, in air quotes, unusable. So I have no idea what actually happened on that night, but I do know that it's admittedly suspicious. So I guess QAnon is buying into the mainstream narrative on this one. Wrong. Not to be one-upped by normie, non-conspiracy theorists calling objectively suspicious circumstances into question, Q followers took it a step further, many of them claiming that Epstein hadn't died, that he either faked his death and replaced himself with a body double in order to sneak out of the prison and smuggle himself to Gitmo so that he could strike a deal with Trump and Q to inform on a bunch of elite deep state cabal members, or that his death was faked by Trump and Q so he could be secreted out of the prison and taken to Gitmo, where he could face real justice for his deep state crimes. The crux of this theory was based on a few photos of Epstein's body being wheeled out of the jail, where Q believers pointed out that it seemed like the supposed body on the stretcher had a different nose than the actual Epstein. This is a photo of Epstein's body versus a, just a regular picture of him before he was dead, where they're saying like his nose is like more curved in the corpse photo. Also, what the fuck is going on with his ear? Yeah, yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of impossible to tell from that weird side photo from like in between a bunch of random stuff. I have no idea. That could be Santa Claus for all I know. I mean, I think it is. Actually, it's funny you say that because I didn't cover this, but part of the, there was a Trump rally during the holidays in, in tw the end of 2018 where Trump brought out Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus. 
and QAnon followers thought that Santa Claus was JFK Jr. On August 15th, QAnon supporters claimed that they were asked to cover up their Q identifiers and other QAnon-related symbols at a Trump campaign rally in Manchester, New Hampshire. The Secret Service and rally organizers denied asking anyone at the event to change their clothes, but it was clear that the White House was starting to become wary of the negative attention Q was garnering them and was trying to do covert damage control. On October 17th, General Michael Flynn pulled out of the speaking at the, quote, Digital Soldier Conference due to increased public scrutiny of the event. On September 11th, another QAnon rally was held in Washington, D.C. This one, however, had even lower attendance than the first one in April of 2018, with people attending estimating that only about 100 people were there, including 12 speakers. The attendance of the rally was covered in both mainstream and independent media, with tons of photos shared of empty bleachers and sparse attendees huddled together in tiny clusters at speaking events. However, QAnon influencers claimed that these were mainstream media lies and that there were actually several hundred people at the event, that the media was strategically sharing photos with crowds off camera to make the rally seem like a joke. On September 25th, an Arizona QAnon believer, Timothy Larson, stormed into a Sedona, Arizona Catholic church, the Church of the Holy Cross, with a crowbar and began vandalizing the building in front of a panicked church attendee while screaming about QAnon conspiracy theories of the Catholic church being involved in the deep state. How old is he? 41. That guy's 41? Yeah. He looks like he's like 15. Weird. Really weird. That's what the Arizona meth does to you. It either makes you look 20 years older or 20 years younger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. I can't deny that. He was quickly arrested and nobody was hurt. In early October, in the middle of the Turkish invasion of Syria, QAnon concocts a conspiracy theory that the Trump administration is faking the entire invasion in order to spark a catalytic event that will pull the U.S. out of the endless stream of forever wars. We've been mired in for the last several decades. The theory is too convoluted and really kind of inconsequential to dig into here. On October 14th, retired Army General Paul E. Vallely was interviewed on a Canadian radio show about QAnon. During the interview, he was asked who Q truly was. His response was, QAnon is information that comes from a group called the Army of Northern Virginia. This is a group of military intelligence specialists of over 800 people that advise the president. The president does not have a lot of confidence in the CIA or the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, much anymore. So the president relies on real operators who are mostly special operations type people. This is where Q picks up some of his information. The QAnon crowd jumped on this interview, citing it as undeniable proof that Q was real, despite the fact that Valerie retired from the army in 1993 and obviously doesn't actually have any insider information on what's currently going on at the White House. On November 2nd, 8chan resurfaced on the internet rebranded as 8kun, a play on the fact that Chan is a Japanese honorific used to refer to a girl, small child, or cute object, for instance, calling your five-year-old daughter Kim Chan. But kun is an honorific used by people of high authority or status referring to younger male counterparts or boys, for instance, calling someone in the grade below you in school Josh Kun. The name change was meant to signify the site growing and maturing in the wake of the awful incidents it had helped create. In a bid to convince web hosting companies and the public that they'd learned from their mistakes and would do better moving forward, the site was able to get back online after finding a host willing to take it. Medialand LLC, a hosting service operated out of Russia by a 36-year-old Ukrainian Alexander Alexandrovich Volosovich. For security, 8kun partnered with Vanwatech, another company willing to deal with all the baggage that came along with 8kun, 
and support it anyway. However, between 8chan going down and 8kun going up, they had lost a great number of their users who had all migrated to other more private chat-based platforms like Discord and Telegram to continue their discussions. When 8kun came back, it was basically just a QAnon website at that point, as that was mostly what comprised the returning audience of users. QAnon followers who literally had no other choice but to return to the site because Q had vowed to never post anywhere else, for some reason. The site received a massive influx of cyber attacks that immediately crippled it shortly after relaunching, making it impossible for any Anons to actually post on the boards. Any Anons except for Q, who was able to consistently post throughout the initial site freeze. Interesting that Q specifically would somehow still be able to post on the site. It's almost like they are working directly with the administrators of the site. The first thing they posted after 8kun went back up. Backslash BAS underscore test backslash 2. Yeah, profound, profound stuff. And then, almost as quickly as it came back, in early November, 8kun disappeared again, having been completely wiped from the net by relentless cyber attacks. It was still accessible by a private darknet tour hidden service, but not accessible through the regular internet. On November 16th, Ron Watkins told the Wall Street Journal that the site was on an indefinite hiatus, but that same day, they moved the site to a .top domain, a generic top-level domain frequently used by malware and phishing sites for its lack of regulation or rules. At that point, the site seemed to stabilize and continue to run. Brennan and a few other internet personalities and hackers continued to work tirelessly to stamp out any additional attempt by the Watkins to get 8kun back online like some kind of really dark game of whack-a-mole. But at a certain point, the Watkai were able to evade even them once they found hosting outside of the country that was willing to host them and didn't care about any of the more unsavory aspects of what the site contained. In December of 2019, just in time for the holidays, Cynthia Apsug was arrested and charged in Colorado with conspiracy to commit second-degree kidnapping of one of her children who had been removed from her custody. Her other daughter reported to police that Apsug had been collaborating with an armed male who was, quote, definitely part of this group QAnon, that her mother had gone to QAnon meetings and believed that the child had been taken by, quote, evil Satan worshippers and, quote, pedophiles, when in reality she had been removed from her custody by CPS and placed in the home of Apsug's mother. And so, QAnon was ending 2019 on a down note, seemingly beaten into a corner. For over two years, they'd faced relentless failure after relentless setback. None of the predictions were coming true. The storm wasn't happening. People were getting tired and frustrated. The national attention on them was more negative and scrutinizing than ever. It was a battle on all fronts for the digital soldiers of Q's army. And worst of all, they couldn't even seem to find a stable place to continue discussing the war. Could this be the end of Q, when it simply got too difficult to press on? When you could no longer just sit back and grab some popcorn? Instead, having to endlessly follow a never-ending stream of updates about whether or not the goddamn website where Q posted was even going to exist? The confusion was definitely enough to discourage the more casual followers and frustrate the all-in true believers to the point of infighting and the dreaded black pill, resigning yourself to the despair that nothing was ever going to get better in the world. As has been true multiple times before, you would not have been unreasonable for assuming that QAnon might have faded into the background in 2020. Yeah, the presidential election was coming up, a time to decide with your vote whether or not the superhero Trump was going to get four more years, or the country was once again going to fall into the evil clutches of the cabal. But they'd already seen from the 2018 midterms that even that didn't work. Q could not rally the troops to bring about the red wave. So was Q dead? Nah, all this movement needed was a shot in the arm. A supercharged double hit of ultra zombie meth to re-energize it. And, well, 
the year 2020 was definitely holding. An explosion of QAnon into the tippy top of the mainstream. Soccer moms and self-help gurus radicalizing their followers with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. The genuine fight against child trafficking being completely hijacked and damaged by a bunch of Twitter trolls. The canonization of absolutely everything being a hoax. The global denial of a pandemic as it clearly kills hundreds of thousands of people, and a violent attack on the American government organized in Facebook groups in the name of Q. We'll explore the final chapter in the QAnon story, the 2020 pandemic leading up to the presidential election and the January 6th Capitol riot on next episode of the Deep Cuts QAnon series. That's right, chumps. This story is too goddamn long, and QAnon month is turning into QAnon month and a quarter. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com or at xdavebakerx on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me assuming the anonymous identity of a poster on the internet, making predictions in a in an obscure website, predictions for the future a future coming storm, if you will, and making my posts on this website, predicting things such as on November 5th, 2021, Dave and Andrew will go to an Arby's and Dave will order a beef and cheddar. (laughs) God damn it. And a side of, of curly fries, along with some potato wedges and some Arby's and horsey sauce. And he will eat the entire sandwich right in front of Andrew. And then they will talk about it on an Arby's episode. God damn it. <laughs> and you can also find me at dapricewrites.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can also get some Deep Cuts merch by going to deepcutspod.com and clicking on the shop or just going to bit.ly.com slash merch where you can get t-shirts and hats and fanny packs with cool Deep Cuts graphics on them. You can get a Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency Junior Sleuth Patch by going to deepcutspod.com and clicking on it on the front page. You can join us on Facebook at Deep Cuts Podcast or Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, the Deep Cuts Podcast. You can join our Facebook group. Just search the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. It's a cool community where we talk about episodes and other fun stuff, make memes, so on and so forth. You can also join our Deep Cuts Discord server by going to bit.ly.com slash Discord. And join another cool community where we also talk about episodes, make memes, and also discuss more specific topics like movies and TV shows and other things. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and the Dead Boy Detectives.